Welcome to episode three of A Humanistic Perspective. I am one of your three hosts, Chad Castilla here. I'm joined with uh, Ethan Castillo and Lily. And we are super happy to have a really special episode for you today. We are featuring one of our good friends and uh, amazing chefs, Mario Palagi. Here's a little background on him for him before we get into the episode here. The Palagi family has been creating culinary masterpieces for over 90 years and spanning over three generations. The traditional roots of his Italian heritage shine through his mouth-watering dishes, which have a favorite in the Chicagoland area since before even Ethan, Lily, or I were born. Um, Chef Mario has had the privilege of being featured in the Taste of Chicago and doing special cooking demonstrations and sharing his take on classic family-inspired recipes. As well as developing a strong career in Illinois, he has numerous opportunities of being featured as a head chef at kitchens around the world. Besides cooking, Mario has lived a life of many unique experiences, spending time traveling the world, playing the flute, and connecting with others. We're super happy to have him on the show and uh, really privileged that he would join us for being our first full guest for an interview. Mario, if you want to uh, say hi and introduce yourself here. Hello, everybody. I hope you're going to enjoy our interview today, our discussion, and I'm sure it's going to um, in, be very informative, and you'll uh, learn a little bit about me and a little bit about the food industry and a lot about what not to do if you're <laughs> going to open a restaurant. <laughs> very nice, very nice. So you guys always know we love to start every episode by trying out a coffee here. So our flavor... Our flavor of the day is we have a beautiful dark roast by the Hill Brothers, which is, I believe, a commercial manufacturer of beans. Um, and this is their dark satin blend. Um, on our first sips here, how's everyone feeling about it? How, it's a, oh, it it's very good. Very rich. It is very rich. It's very probably nice. the richest one that we've tasted. Yeah. Sponsored uh, so by Statler Technologies. Thank you very much, Statler Technologies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was the one who actually purchased this blend for today's episode. Um, so we're going to jump on in here with... I wanted to get a little background, Mario. Why don't, why don't you share for the people maybe a little bit of your upbringing and the, the history of your family? All right. Well, <clears throat> it began before Color TV, mm -hmm. and uh, our family is an Italian family that migrated from Italy in the 1800s in a small town up in the foothills of Calabria, which is way south, seven hours south by train, by fast train of Rome, and uh, it was called Zimbario. The town is a small hill town, and my grandfather and my grandmother and great-grandparents all migrated from there to the upper peninsula of Michigan in the 1800s. And they stayed there for a couple years, two or three years. They had a cousin that pretty much got them to come to the UP, as they call it, Upper Peninsula, and so they decided that there was another cousin in Chicago, so they would just leave the peninsula. Wow. And uh, which, at this point, there are several distant second and third cousins that still live there, but the Pelagis migrated to right around the, what's called now the South Loop in Chicago, at the 18th and Federal, 19th and Clark, 18th and Prairie, we own two of the old historic prairie mansions in the 40s and 50s, which were uh, Marshall Fields had lived on there. 
um, Chicago South Loop was. And how many of you was living in the house at the time? Um, there were two homes, two two mansions, and there were probably um, myself. I lived somewhere else, but I had uh, about seventeen or eighteen aunts and uncles on the Pelagi side. So wow. we had uh, in that area the two buildings there were probably four or five different families living on different floors and then another family was living at 18th and Clark another Pelagi who had married into an Irish family English Irish called the Bentley family they lived at 18th and Clark and so Prairie Avenue is the historic area now I mean there were it was all mansions at one time and uh, Chicago, the South Loop, back in the heyday of the, the 1800s, was the wealthiest people. But we came in in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and the 70s is when we let the mansions go. We sold the mansions. My uncle Dan Pelagi, who was a major Chicagoland player, and um, sold it to Donnelly Press, the makers of the old Chicago yellow phone book okay. for parking lots. And wow. they knocked the mansions down, believe it or not. And to this day, the space is still open. And in the 90s, it was um, recognized as a Hillary Rodman Clinton park, named after Bill Clinton's wife. And uh, they, after a while, they changed that. And uh, basically, now it's a, it's a small park at 18th and Prairie. And they have a walk over there that goes directly to Soldier's Field. And uh, so we were there. We owned groceries, taverns, um, meat markets, restaurants. And uh, we also were involved in Chicago's politics. My Uncle Dan, my uh, dad's first cousin, Fred Rohde, mm. he was the first ward alderman. If you needed a, um, to build a skyscraper, you had to see Freddie. And go, uh, you know, get his blessing, and then you could go build a skyscraper. What do you remember about your childhood? What what, what was it like growing up? Um, growing up as a Pelagi was basically um, lots of cousins with 17, 18 aunts and uncles. We would have at least 25 little cousins all get together at the mansions on Sunday. And it was a, a so this pasta, was a regular thing. A pasta Sunday, yeah, yeah, it was all pasta. It's kind of like how you see it in the mom movies. Well, right. I mean, I guess you know, or in the Italian American or the old Italian, you know, that we're very clannish. We sure. we stay within ourselves and we we eat heartily and uh, you know we take care of each other and we take pride in cooking and presenting food to each other. And so the the things I remember is. There'd be two seatings. The adults would eat um, first. They would probably have um, 40 or 50 adults eating pasta. And Grandmother Pelagi was really an outstanding cook. Wow. And that's the meatball that we have carried on, which probably originated in Calabria in the 1860s, 1840s, 1830s. I've actually had, me and Lily have had one of Mario's meatballs. It's incredible. It's in, they're insane. They're to die for. They're, they're so tender, very juicy, and it, it complements any pasta dish just so well. Right, and so on Sundays, what would go on, the adults would eat, 
And while the adults were eating, Uncle Dan Pelagi, who was kind of like the godfather of the Pelagis, and he was my personal godfather, he would show uh, 16 millimeter um, Bugs Bunny cartoons and you know the Warner Brothers. Yeah. We had a 16 millimeter projector going. How did he get his hands on one of those? Well, when you're in the south side of Chicago, and you pretty much, uh, you know, he owned a jukebox company. Okay. Cool. You know, so uh, he had all the uh, equipment he ever needed. At one time, we had um, over 150,000 jukeboxes in the city of Chicago. It's a sizable inventory at the time. Yes. Uncle Dan Pelagi, a man named Freddie Morelli, and my father was a, not a partner, but my father, outside of being a restaurant broker, he was a jukebox technician. So his job, would he would spin the singles, change the uh, 33s, change the 45s, collect the money, count the money, turn it in, mm -hmm. and make repairs on the jute boxes. Mm -hmm. So, so that's what we did. Yes, he would he would uh, buy restaurants, okay. fix them up, and sell them. And Do you think at a young age, like you guys were very heavily influenced by opening like businesses and such? Like was that a very much like something that was common in the Palazzi family? Correct. We were entrepreneurs. Um, the family, my father, my my immediate aunts and uncles were all. Uh, entrepreneurs. My father was a, um, oh, he did some maintenance for a Greek restaurant owner. He cleaned the place, swept the place. The restaurant owner dies, and the Greek family thinks that they're going to get his restaurant. The Greek man gave my brother, my father, who was 16 wow. or 17 at the time, his restaurant. He wow. Holy cow. And so 16 years old, what year is this? This has to be, let's see, Dad was born in 1904, so this had to be 1920, wow. 21, 22. Could you imagine, and 1920, yeah. you're 16 years old, and all of a sudden, restaurants on your shoulders. So what would you say it takes to become an entrepreneur? What did it drive all of you to become one? Well, basically, if you have not been brought up with the silver or the gold or diamond spoon in your mouth, you have to learn how to fend for yourself. You have to learn a trade. You have to learn how to make money. You have to learn how to make a living. You have and to create value with your create hands. value. And, and back then, I mean, it was all you had was your body to make money, to learn a trade. And do you think at a young age you were more focused on making money rather than your passions? Or do you think you were always focused on your passions? Um, or, what you, well, or how did you figure out your passions? I guess would be the first question. And then going my my. Uh, Early life was uh, all about bubblegum, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, <laughs> Twinkies, and... But um, these, it's costing you change to buy this well, stuff at that and time, And at right? five and six, we shoveled snow nice. okay. in the neighborhood. Hustling. And we hustled and we, we uh, raked leaves. We cut grass and there was no power mower. There, it was all a, uh, a push mower. And so you'd rake leaves, and you know you'd. At five and six, I was raking leaves, shoveling snow. At um, seven, I got a job uh, working for, believe it or not, for the uh, Rock Island Lines at 91st and Longwood. I swept the uh, train station every day after all the commuters came and went, 
and I was uh, given 50 cents a week oh, every wow. Saturday. So the lady took total, you know, child labor laws. <laughs> it was very different at there, the time. There was no child labor law. <laughs> At least, you know, I mean, in Where, the neighborhood. Did you like doing it? Or were you in your mind where you're like, I just got to do this? Oh, no, no. It was, it was great. I mean, yeah. you know, we, all the Pelagis are zealous about work. My brother Joe, my older brother Joe, just retired 42 years in Central Steel and Wire and wow. Allstate Insurance. My other brother, John, retired 40 years in steel work and steel plants. My brother Sam is still working. He's a semi-repairman in Kankakee, Illinois. I'm still somewhat uh, working, although I've uh, really gotten more semi-retired in the last year because of COVID closing our place in Evergreen Park, where I was the head chef and banquet chef at the Red Palm in Evergreen Park, and that is no more. Mm -hmm. And because we were a banquet hall, you can't have banquets anymore. You cannot have gatherings more than six or eight. So um, it's, it's devastating for business, really. Well, it has devastated. And, you know, by the time they feel this vaccine might help and might make everything like it used to be, which it will never really be like it used to be, right. there will be probably uh, four or 5,000 restaurants in Chicago that will have closed. And, wow. I'm, and that's, that's, I'm seeing it all over the U.S. right now, really. Well, in worldwide, well. worldwide. Yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> you know, it's a really not fair with some of the things that they're closing just because with you can see in L.A. that there's bigger companies that are open and then the smaller businesses are not open. Yeah, I don't know if you saw. There was, a, there was a lady out in L.A. and she had a restaurant and she's had it there for like 50 plus years. And they told her she couldn't serve outside for, to customers. But then, right next to her, a Hollywood studio had set up a whole catering setup for their film crew. But then her restaurant, their patio, was right next to it, about 10 feet away. And she was told by the government she couldn't be open for her restaurant. And so then she had to close down. And that, I mean, it's just sad. We're seeing it uh, right now all over the U.S., really. It's, and I, I think a lot of it, too, is I think you guys talked about our prof profit margins are pretty tight in the, in the restaurant industry. Could you talk a little bit maybe about that or, well, or from um, your perspective as a chef? Right. I've been a chef owner operator um, probably four or five different times. I've owned my own businesses, started them, built them. I've built two restaurants, big restaurants, and one in downtown Chicago, one in the South Loop around McCormick Place. I've built them from scratch where I've done the drywalling. I've actually wow. done, I've designed the restaurant. I've done all the schematics of the plumbing, the electrical, the lighting, the, the way the seating, the layout of the bar. I've gotten it. All I had to do was take it to an architect and give them $5,000 and they put a stamp on my drawing. Nice. So wow. I've done a lot of, you know, from uh, ground up, I've made many, many restaurants. Yeah, and um, the entire experience. Right, right, yeah. right, right. You know, because when you don't have a lot of money, like big franchise companies, you don't have a lot of money. And when you don't have a lot of money, it's very difficult. You have to build what you can. You have to make do with what you know and organize and design and make it work. Just and there's a huge risk with that, but you're willing to, as an entrepreneur, right? You're oh, willing to take that risk, well, and that's I mean, just assumed with anything. Correct. I mean, it's a crazy risk. The restaurant business, the you know, before COVID, I mean, 
most restaurants, 30% of all restaurants that would open on day one, within three years, they have been closed. Yeah. Right. So I, I want to get back on the, the timeline here. So you're, you're growing up, you're younger. Now let's go closer to high school, college. Are you leaving Chicago? Are you staying in the area? Are you, are you still sweeping at night? What's going well, on? Well, I going? mean, I um, got really involved in uh, cooking for large groups. I uh, worked my way through high school, and I worked in the St. Rita High School cafeteria, the Mustang Spa, and I was in charge of making the Italian beef sandwiches and the Italian sausage sandwiches. My younger brother, John, we both ran the cafeteria. He did the pizzas and the french fries, and, uh, and we did this morbid-looking um, thing called a hamburger. And, uh, but that's how, you know, that was my mass production, um, my entrance into mass producing for outside of uh, the family in eight or 10 or Were you whatever. compensated at the time for that? Well, it paid all my tuition, gave me my and high school. And this is at, at college? How old are you? No, high school. This high is school. high school. I'm, I'm now uh, 16 years old, 17. And, but my original recipe, I was a fried bologna chef. <laughs> At probably eight or nine years old, I made all the fried bologna sandwiches for the family. I had four brothers. But they were brothers. probably good. Oh, they were outrageous. I mean, <laughs> you know, when you know your fried bologna is done. What's the secret for fried bologna? Um, high heat, butter, and you got to let it, um, the meat bubble up like a sombrero <laughs> and brown around the edges. And then it's got to be soaked in butter and you put it on white bread with mayonnaise. See, you hear, heard it here, exclusive. That, that's the way to do it. <laughs> I guess going through that, like at, at that time going through high school, if you look at kids in that day and age and that time period comparative to now, do you see nowadays kids are less influenced to go out and maybe do an aspiration such as this? Do you think, or even when you said like you were doing for me, you know, like you said, you were going out cutting lawns and, and doing all that kind of stuff. And maybe that was more of an, a common thing back then. Um, and when you look at nowadays, not many kids are doing anything at that young of an age. Do you think over you the think years, you see a difference in the hustle culture? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, there's, there's a big difference in my generation's, before me and the now generations and it's called uh, the now generation they're afraid of the word labor mm -hmm. they're afraid of the actual work you know I mean uh, everything has progressed where my parents wanted to give me the best they could yeah. the parents now myself which I'm not a parent but I would give my child the best I could but in return what you're doing is you're taking away the opportunity for children to learn the College of Hard Knocks, learn how to toil, learn how to work. And that's why parents that consistently insist that kids have chores, that's the best way to be a parent. To, to instill some Well, uh, right, because work. you're helping okay. them rather than hindering them. As much as they complain and squabble and cry and you know scream about it and, and resist it, in the long run, once they're growing, they have habits that will help them be individuals, will help them uh, cooperate with a family. When they create a family, they'll know how to create a family. Mm -hmm. And 
I would agree. I yeah, no, I think that was perfectly said there. But I, I think even nowadays, I think it's so hard just to be a parent. A lot of parents can't even parent due to, you know, kids, when you see them nowadays, even you, if you tell them one thing to do, you know, and then you scream at them, that's considered abuse now. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So mm-hmm. I feel like the, the level of like, and that has just changed over the years. So it's just, it's cool to see. But I think it is very important to instill those values at such a young right. age. Right. And um, the discipline that has been lacking now wasn't lacking when I was a child and we were reprimanded sitting in the corner you never sat in a corner you might go to your room but that was very rare you usually had to do something seriously difficult to make up for whatever wrongdoing you did and you were you were reprimanded I mean sure I was uh, part of the generation where it was okay to smack your kid and I was a kid and I got smacked right in the high schools the Catholic religion they used to love heard so many stories my grandma as well Mm -hmm. she would say her her teachers would discipline her with a ruler she actually broke a a wooden spoon on my cousin's butt I remember just the (laughs) um the nun at my religion school the Catholic religion school she would beat some of the kids there even just when I was a kid (laughs) oh yeah I mean it was allowed then and um so go back to the hippie land era when Dr. Spock came on, and this is where discipline divided and turned into abuse versus discipline of your children, and mm. all of a sudden they said no, that you're... What time you're, period you're, is this? This has yeah. got to be the 70s, okay. Uh, okay. early yeah. 70s, yeah, where that makes sense. You know, they, now you're, you're abusing your child, you're scarring so your child. marketing and propaganda. That's Media when the different songs sort of came out with um, the teachers. I can't remember the names of them right now. I just remember my dad would play them all the time. Um, no school's out forever. Oh, yeah. That song. Yeah, that was, uh, what's his name? Uh, yeah. Ali Ozzy Osbourne. Right. School's out for the summer. <laughs> wasn't that song about the, school's or no, it was um, Pink Floyd, wasn't it? That, that sang about the abuse of teachers and students. It was one of those bands. Yeah, well, Do you there, know what I'm talking and there about? was, uh, I mean, Everyone my age and my generation, we were, we walked a very straightforward line, and as soon as you got out, you got knocked back into the line by physical force. It was considered like uh, what people do with football so players. So it was now. really hard to be different because everyone wanted you to be a certain way. Would you say? Yeah, they they controlled you to the utmost and um, to a point where they did hurt you they did make marks on your body so were you were you a rebel in high school or did you follow your parents were you a good boy were you getting the best grades what was your i guess a persona or character like all i wanted to do was play basketball football and baseball and hang out with the boys and the girls (laughs) and you know the rest is i i got through high school I did okay. I wasn't, uh, you know, a genius, yeah. you know, outside of geometry and earth science and all that stuff. I mean, but um, basically, and we lived for sports. Yeah, that was it. So then, all right, col- high school's over. Did you go on to college? Did you get went out on, of the house? What, what correct, what correct. What went on is um, 
I was uh, brought up in a period where the Vietnam War was the, the draft of the young American children and teenagers. As soon as you turned 18, you were drafted to go to Vietnam. Were you drafted? No, I, um, I had a friend of mine after, after high school. Um, he told me, you know, Mario, you, you need to uh, go to this, go to the city college you know, here, go sign up. So he was like a mentor in my life. He was a um, geographer, and his wife was a German teacher. And uh, she was from Germany, of course, and he was a Chicago guy. But um, he said, here, you know, you're going to get, if you don't enroll right now in September, you're going to get drafted, and you're going to go to Vietnam. And it's not a good scene right now. Yeah. You know, America. Were is you opposed to the Vietnam War? Because I know at times, you know, it was it was a highly politicized thing. There were two sides of it. Where were you at your age? Like, what were your thoughts on? Um, I was not for the Vietnam War. Yeah. So what I did is, Bernie said here, he actually gave me um, the city colleges. Then it was five dollars a class hour to enroll. Nice. So he gave me wow. forty bucks. So I went to... That's a uh, lot back then. Well, yeah. right. Yeah. I went yeah. to the uh, junior college, which is now called um, Mayor Daly Junior That's College awesome. on the he South really Side. really blessed you with, yeah. like, pretty right, much gave you right. a scholarship. Well, basically, um, you know, because of... Uh, it was a very intense time. The 60s, growing up in Chicago in the 60s, uh, you know, if you, if you didn't have a diamond spoon in your mouth and if you weren't hidden away from reality... You were faced with racial wars. Every, the whole city was up in war. Martin Luther King was killed. The West Side riots. The city burned down. Holy cow. The whole uh, martial law. So do you think right. living through COVID and the pandemic is harder than the adversity you faced at that time? Or do you think the people of that time faced way worse than they're facing now? Um, well, the, we're just strictly, this is a medical thing. Yeah. It's not so much a sociological thing. Sure, this is sure. a, a medical thing that, like, when I was a, a kid, four or five years old, I was around when polio was around. Mm -hmm. So we got vaccinated. Mm -hmm. Say yes to vaccination, who's ever listening. Get vaccinated because if you look back on all the great plagues and all of the great diseases, the only reason we've ever gotten to 2021 is because of medical science creating something that will save our butts from dying off. Like a path. Yes, and, and a vaccine, okay? So, uh, and, but it's way different. Back then, it was more of a sociological, I mean, the city was going through lots of change. Mankind was going through lots of change. Mm -hmm. It went from a rigid, rigid mother and father govern their children with a, a strap and a belt, and all of a sudden these flower children were running around and not wanting to go to war, not wanting to get drafted. And so the youth was starting to develop their own sense of um, reality, their, their own opinions, and it created a lot of hardships in families. It created a lot of hardships in us who wanted to see something different and make some kind of changes. It developed a lot of hardships everywhere. Sure. So luckily, um, 
we fared through it. And I believe some of my generation in the 60s have contributed a great deal to some of the good things that are still in existence in 2021. <laughs> <laughs> He's sipping his coffee for anyone listening. And uh, so um, now it's, it's a different kind of thing, but uh, we're still faced with the adversities. There's still racism all over the place. And, you know, it's, it's crawling back out of the woodwork. I was around when uh, blacks, whites, Latinos, Puerto Ricans in the, the late 60s, everyone got along, believe it or not. Yeah. There was a program and called... And how, how did they get to that point where everyone got along? Was there things that were like... Or yeah, like how do you... From how, your perspective, because we can hear it from a textbook, but like sure. on the streets or like living in your life, how did you see the change happen? Um, the, the hippie had a major part of trying Would to bring music. Would you have considered yourself music. a hippie at the time? I was... Uh, I think I've seen the photo you've shown me where you had long hair, you well, were in I Florida. Had, you know, I had a long hair and long beard, but... Are you the definition also, of a hippie? Not no, really, no. no. I wasn't, uh, no. okay. you know, out um, demonstrating, and okay. you know, I was just enjoying the life and the travel, and you know. But um, I also want to say that um, my early education was in fine arts, okay. in painting, drawing. So that's what you went to that community college for. Yes, when I went there. I took, believe it or not, I went there and it was very late in the registrar's office and they, they said, we don't have any more classes for you. I said, wait a minute, oh, yeah. you got to have classes. And uh, they said, no, we have no classes. I said, what do you have? They said, well, we have pottery. We have uh, life drawing. We have ceramics. We have oil painting. Well, you have a whole art we have right there. watercolor. We have cinematography. We have, um, and I said, okay, I'll take them. So, so were you not planning on doing art classes at that time? Oh, no. Well, no, you just no, didn't no. want to go to Vietnam. You didn't right. want to get drafted. Right. I mean, already 15 of my very close friends came back dead from wow. Vietnam. Wow. We had funerals at one period. One year, we had funerals every couple weeks. That changes you. See, my, when my grandma died, my life and my perspective really changed and divulged, and it grew me up a lot. But I can't imagine being at your age and seeing 15 of your friends. Well, yeah, I had a patient I drove. His name was Gary, and he was in Vietnam where he just passed away a few years ago. But Or no, actually, like last year, he was one of our patients we were transporting. But, I mean, he would just tell me the countless times he was almost shot at and lucky. I mean, he been, he was shot and wounded, and he was more than lucky to get out of that kind of stuff. He well, said, for those that survived... They were very, very lucky, and they were confronted with um, odds that were against everything they were ever taught to deal with, to go to Vietnam. I've traveled around the world and back. I've been to Indonesia, Thailand, Singapore. But when I was in Thailand, I want to get into this. If you go north in Thailand, you go up into the Chiang Mai area where the elephant rides are, where all the tourists, that's what they want. But when I was there, you didn't go up to the northern because the further north you go, the closer to Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And there was still insurgencies going on. There was still wow. prisoner of wars. And But what I'm saying is that Vietnam 
was totally abnormal for the everyday American young fellow, young woman. It was a um, tropical thicket, a tropical jungle filled with thorns, filled with every kind of thick. I mean, the bugs could kill you The there. bugs, the snakes, the reptiles, the, the malaria. The, you know, uh, outside of the fact that the enemy was after you. Right. And they were hiding everywhere. So yeah, they, they knew guerrilla warfare. They did well, that's, you know, and France had occupied Vietnam. And they said to America, don't go. And 30 years later, a, um, uh, McNamara, he was the Secretary of Defense about eight years ago, he said, he came out and said that Vietnam was the worst, one of the worst mistakes America ever created. And, um, you know, like, like all wars, I mean, of the modern day, there, there could be uh, more thought about before you go and invade a country or occupy a country. We had to fight in the First World War. Mm -hmm. We had to fight in the Second World War. Uh, America was faced with odds were against us and the world was being taken over by some gruesome dictators oh, yeah. in the First World War, Second World War. You know, the Civil War is another story. I mean, did we need to do that? I mean, it's still going on. Yeah. <laughs> do you we're, think we're you were a new facet of it? Yeah, right? you were mentioning all those places you visited. I mean, for our listeners, or for even us personally, if there's I'm one like, place how did you, you could get there. When did you leave? So, like, you're at this community college. Did you hit the road then? You know, um, you, said you were a hippie. Like, how okay, did you get so on the road? Yeah, okay, so what yeah. I would do every summer in between semesters, okay. I would go and pick a mountain range in America. Is this when you make the stew? And could we? Could you share that story, please? In, in backpack throughout America, we we would go sure. and we'd get on the road. We'd get our pickup trucks. I had a '67 Chevy pickup that I built a, a kind of a house on the back on top of the the canopy that was already there. We wow. hit. So my first exposure was going to Colorado. Okay. So my first oh, probably. 18, 19, 20, 21, every summer was spent up in the mountains in Colorado, outside of Boulder, up in the Glacier Lakes, backpacking, painting with uh, oils. So what were you doing music. to make money while you were there? Well, I would always make money before. And then save up for it. Correct. I mean, this was summer vacation. Got it. Yeah, yeah. So that's how I basically... Uh, and Are then, you grateful? Now you're saying you were doing paintings and stuff like that. Are you grateful for doing those classes that you did back in uh, your high school or the college? Well, outside of it, um, I got a, uh, a 2S um, status with the selective service with the draft. Mm. 2S meant school, S for school. Got it. So you are in school and you're not, you cannot be drafted into this military. Okay, so, and I was part of the original, they called it a lottery, where your number, your birth date, um, com uh, paralleled a number, and they took the first 100 and 220 wow. from 1 to 365, and I was uh, 115, so I was going to go and get drafted. I went down for my physical at the selective service, you know, where they do all the, you know, they said I was um, approved to be in the armed forces, and that's when I got 
definitely in the school, and uh, that helped. Uh, you know, it yes, the art world seriously um, carved my life out for me. Learning the arts, learning the fundamentals of all of these different um, trades and skills and classes and you know it, it, it helps to develop because when you're in high school unless you've been in shop you're like a, a big kid you you don't know anything you you don't know right. how to use any tools you don't know you know and that's why when i was brought up we had trade schools right. every high school had a trade department yeah. my high school saint rita had an airplane hangar they taught airplane mechanics that's they, really they, cool. That's, that's awesome. super cool. They had an auto shop. They taught auto mechanics. Do you think these types of programs need to be added back into high schools? Because we see some of it with IVIC, but not much. Yeah, I was going to say, there's there's some programs around the U.S. for, for graduates and, and high school-level students to get some of this, but it's trades have gone a lot to the wayside, marketing-wise and, and attention-wise for the labor market in the U.S. Hmm. Correct. Well, what happened is... Um, Suddenly, they, it, it was a union fight, a fight with the union and the Chicago public school system. The union had their teachers in the school, okay, the trades. Yeah. The electrician, the, the teacher was a union electrician. That's the awesome. carpentry was a union carpenter. The schools didn't want the union in their schools. Mm. That's how... The trade schools disappeared, wayside, yeah. and what became of the young people of America? They now were floundering from year to year. It turned from a, a four-year program to a six-year program to an eight-year college program mm -hmm. to all of a sudden getting out of college with a degree that goes nowhere, and they're tending bar, they're driving cabs, they're washing dishes. They're, you know, they're chauffeuring after spending their parents two hundred and fifty thousand dollars on a degree to make them a professional, because of the, the, not everyone is cut out for that, but this is what happened when all the trades went to the side. And now, like you just said, that you Lil felt that you know she mentioned there are trades popping back up. It's becoming a trend now to reinstall lane so tech. Important. Yeah, yeah. Lane, lane tech. And, really? you know, that, yeah, we lost probably 20, probably 30 years worth of young people mm -hmm. in, in that um, period that just floundered because of they were not, they did not want to go to and college. They, they pushed college. They, they, everyone thought college was like, Oh, you're gonna immediately get a job. It was like an insurance policy. I feel like for some well, reason. at one point it did, but now there's there's it's flooded. There's too much partying. There's well, right, and that all goes back to, you know, I mean the discipline. You know, the the grandmothers of all the children died off, <laughs> and the grandkids ran wild. Right, so. right. <laughs> and they just get, they just get more free the younger they get. Well, right, right, but. Um, yeah, so I mean back... So Colorado is where we sort of left Yeah, off. Colorado, I mean, that was uh, basically um, my escape. That's where I realized um, land without concrete, land without skyscrapers, 
land without uh, two and three million people on it, mm -hmm. and it was fresh air. It was in the mountains, you know. Colorado's beautiful. Colorado's I beautiful. I mean, had the chance to go yet, but my cousin lives out there, and she goes skiing every weekend. Was that something that you would do? Um, no, I've never been a skier. No, I was basically a backpacker. I I was into um, backpacking. I've been up and over every mountain range in the United States, and since I've been uh, going backpacking, I've I've hit every mountain range but mm -hmm. only because I fell in love with the wide open spaces and what it does fresh air mountains scenery is it it takes anything inside of you and rings it out and gives you a, a fresh perspective on mm -hmm. the world and the life whatever. I wanted to ask alongside this right now um, what was your religious upbringing and at this time, at those mountains or anything, were you meditating? Were you and what, did you have any spiritual experiences or like? What, well, what, what I mean, I was that? brought up, and you know, an Italian American Catholic. Sure. You know, I was brought up, believe it or not, when uh, the Catholic Mass wasn't in English; it was all in Latin. Wow. So every day I went to church. You, you could sleep. Latin. You could sleep because you didn't understand <laughs> Latin. So it was great. <laughs> It has a nice little chanting kind of thing going, and yeah, yeah, it's kind of like a lullaby, right? A lullaby, <laughs> but um, so uh, you know, I I wasn't real deeply spiritual. I went through the Catholic religion. I did what they wanted me to do. We prayed. We you know we learned all the prayers. But after high school, I I pretty much and after I hit the mountains and saw other things, I you know I just started to. Uh, become somewhat like a, um, what would I call it, a, um, just a um, admirer of the great creation mm -hmm. and believe in and see that the creation controls your life, our lives, the world's lives, not a religion, not an individual, mm -hmm. because there's 500 religions that have 500 individuals that are supposed to be God Almighty, and just look at all the problems we have. Right. But Mother Nature, it has some problems. It'll kick your ass. It'll knock you off a mountain. It'll sweep you into the sea. But the majority of the times, uh, you know, you're at great peace, and uh, there's and it's an amazing community uh, when you do step away from, you know, your every day-to-day -day society. Why do people go on vacations mm -hmm. in Laana Beach? It's the same thing. It might be a short section for a short two weeks, but they go there, they lay there, they commune with the sun, they go to the ocean, and they're not anything like what they were when they go back to work. Do you think people should, you know, to create a more mindful and peaceful life, do you think people should move more? People should travel more. Hmm. Whether you move um it's like the Statler family here. They're the very spiritual family, all right? And they, they have their spiritual beliefs and their family. It's, it's very strong base, and they live in a very beautiful place mm -hmm. that just helps to calm being out here on this compound, the Statler compound. Oh, it's, it's so peaceful. It's, it's just peaceful. Yeah. So people should pull away from their everyday um, 
doggy dog life and occupation. The America doesn't take vacations the way the other world does. Yeah, we'll, we'll go somewhere on vacation, but I'll still have my phone on. I'll keep the ringer on, you know. Right, right. And, uh, you know, America is a country. What do we do? We do two weeks. Europe does three months. Right. I mean, they, Australia, it's a holiday. I met See, and that's where, like, people, when they say they want to have these smaller careers, that's where, like, even when I say setting yourself up financially smart, setting yourself up financially smart gives you that opportunity and will to travel like that. And if you're not setting yourself up, you're not giving yourself that opportunity to explore the world. I mean, you're only here on this land for, you know, one time. Basically, you're right. I mean, you know, the hereafter, I always say if everyone came back, it would be seriously overcrowded. <laughs> yeah, truly. So Colorado, what's going on after that? Where's maybe the next big month? Well, Colorado, or... come back to uh, Chicago and um, leave the junior colleges. And I went to the American Academy of Fine Arts in downtown Chicago and enrolled there as an art student and studied uh, painting, drawing, sculpture, portrait work, a uh, little bit of illustration. And um, then uh, I decided I had to get out. And so I left, I went to New Mexico. A friend of mine, a wow. Chicago family, a serious Chicago Irish family, the Kelly family. <laughs> they, were, they were plumbers and sewer workers. Cool. One left the fold, David, and he went and bought five acres up in the mountains outside Albuquerque and in the Sandia Ridge. And, uh, you know, and he, he said to me, he says, Mario, why don't you come out and uh, visit? And he really wanted me to come out and help dig his uh, foundation <laughs> <laughs> by hand. Yeah. Oh, my God. By hand. In, big, big house? Uh, pretty big foundation in desert clay and desert sand so was it easy to dig out or oh no? it was horrible well, yeah, it was probably hell. <laughs> building homes still now in, in mexico and stuff is quite similar i don't think they have as much machinery well, as we do here right. correct and the elements there um the earth new is mexico's in the in the united states yeah. oh he said new mexico new mexico oh, okay, albuquerque sorry sorry it's in the albuquerque area but the desert floor is solid 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 sand clay no matter what you're building, it still takes 200% more energy with your bulldozer or whatever. And uh, basically, so I went to New Mexico and um, I uh, lived with David up in the, he built an A-frame by the time we finished the um, foundation. He built a beautiful A-frame. We had a uh, giant wind generator. It was an airplane prop. Went into about 12, uh, Oh, big 12-volt batteries, and he ran that back into the house, and that's where he got, he ran a stereo, ran the dishwasher, ran the clothes machine, ran all the lighting, right. ran the heat, but we had a fireplace, I mean, and, uh, but I, at that point, I had already left the um, American Academy of Art, and I was uh, at the University of New Mexico, I was, uh, I went over there and I, I got a, a part-time job um, sitting for portraits. Oh, so nice. I would get $15 an hour. But my main job in Albuquerque at the time, I was a baker. I baked 125 pounds of bread a night. 
without wow. any wow. machines. What were what were your hours? What um, is the nighttime? Picture? I went in at uh, nine p.m. and uh, finished, wrapped it up by six a.m. and then we had to deliver. We were what was called the co-ops back with the the land of the uh, oh the, the hippies. We had co-ops. We had stores where you know you could buy whole grains. Or, you know, it was just a whole co-op was what, a different. What were you making in the bakery? What was your specialty? I made uh, four different types of breads. I made a, um, a standard two-pound white. Okay. I made a standard uh, one-pound French. I made a um, goodness bread, which was a fortified bread with sorghum molasses, um, walnuts, uh, raisins, um, were you a vegetarian at this time in your life yet? I had already started to, uh, yeah, at about 24 years old, 25 years old, I was pretty much a, a vegetarian full-time, right, yeah. right. I had cheese, I had, but I just... What, it, what it, made you, yeah, first, like, switch? Um, in the beginning, back... Uh, was our, it like hippies were doing it because they thought it was sustainable, or what? Um in the beginning, hippies really didn't think of it as a, um, a healthy alternative as much as an emotional, sociological thing that they just didn't want. Middle Eastern influences came in. India influences came in. The Indians, they, they um, adorn the cows. They don't, you know, they don't eat their cows. They get their, their sacred and, you know, just... America was starting to change sure. dramatically. There was the, the Middle East Huge was coming in. Influence. Giant culture was coming in. Uh, tai Chi, China was coming in. The Indian culture was coming in. Meditation was coming so in. So were you meeting people with all sorts of different cultural backgrounds through your travels? I was meeting... Uh, Especially that co-op that you talked yeah, about. Yeah, I met, I met um, a ton of different types of people that we were all had certain things in common. We believed in good, healthy foods. We believed in uh, um, doing things with uh, um, heart-healthy ingredients, even back then. I mean, that's really where, you know, I mean, America um, has always had good food, but America also had, and still does, have some of the biggest junk food population. Fat. In the world, pyramid, we kind of flip it upside down. In the world, I mean, <laughs> was oh, was I don't know how if I would say this right, but was obesity a bigger thing back then, or people that were so unhealthy? Like, was that a common thing even just growing up? Like, was that or was ever was there a lot? Well, more I mean, that were a lot more in the Italian family, I mean, there were my aunts all weighed out at uh, two hundred pounds. 220 225 and okay okay you know but yeah. they were it was normal it was the yeah. you know the the peasants of italy the you know the the women well, in charge they were, ate a lot of well they just yeah they ate it but they worked their butts off and you know Still they fine, I, I mean they worked you know like like they call it worked your fingers to the bone and i mean they did and uh so but back to um the generation that was changing and for some reason people started to think well you know slaughtering of the animal and um, you know killing of the animal and eating of the animal there was a, uh, a, a kind of a following that we didn't want to be part of that and so I was part of that movement but as time went on 
I also um, kind of moved away from that and I started to understand that food, healthy foods, the healthier they are, it means they come from the sky, the trees, the gardens, you know, the, the land, mm -hmm. you know, eat, eat your vegetables, eat your produce, eat your fruits. Uh, you know, in the Bible it says, you know, eat from the trees, eat from the land. And, you know, we've just, as a, a human race, we've straight away, we've had the opportunity. Now people are getting back to it, maybe, uh, you know, Six, it's seven hundred, eight hundred. Difficult though, when all of the soil is there's only like an inch or two of topsoil left, and so we have to find a new way of agriculture and farming. Correct. Right. I mean, like, good point, Lil. Um, since I've come out to the Yorkville area, I've worked at a few places. Uh, one place, particular in in Sugar Grove, I'm not going to mention it, but. They were owned by farmers, and they told me, they said, Mario, there are no hardly any more coyotes. There are hardly any more um, pheasant. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, you know, why, why? You know, why is that? He said, because of the way they um, micromanage the crops, there's no open space for the animals to move around in anymore or be you know, to roam. Yeah, and they've basically, basically been caged out by crops. It's the, the wild, the open range has been deranged here. And it was something interesting because, you know, I mean, I was brought up a city kid and, um, but, you know. What do you think of cities? Do you think going in the future, do you think it should maybe be more colonization, small, small communities? Or and do you little think the, the big city will stay? Or, yeah. No, the big cities are here to stay. I mean, you know, the big cities were created because of convenience. And because yeah. of overpopulation. I feel like I feel like over time, if there's too many people born, there's not going to be enough land to fit everyone everywhere to have a small community to really have everything that that small community would need to function. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get that. Um, so I wanted to get back to your timeline here you're at Colorado you're, you're doing the bakery so I'm, I'm in New Mexico he's yeah. in New Mexico yeah. I'm doing or, the yeah. I'm doing the bakery um, 70 hours a week and working at the university maybe 15 hours a week and then I would go to the um, oh it was the flea market every every Saturday in Albuquerque and I would draw portraits of people charcoal portraits and uh, for a few bucks, yeah. stuff like that. And um, so that was my art. But then I happened to meet a girl at the flea market mm -hmm. that wanted her portrait done. And she was uh, vending uh, cantaloupes. Okay. And it turns out that we became friends and she lived in Albuquerque. And um, that started another journey that we ended up uh, picking up from Albuquerque, and we moved to Cocoa Beach, Florida. Nice. Wow. And so this is where I, yeah. I think I saw a news clipping of you, actually, right. from Florida that you've shown me. Right, right, right. Um, right. So why, why did you move to Florida? What, what was the urge? Well, the crazy part, it wasn't that I wanted to go to Florida so much. It was uh, that my girlfriend at the time, her father was... Um, you'll flip, he was the four-star general 
commander-in-chief of the United States Air Force. <laughs> and he was uh, stationed. That was her dad, and he was stationed. Were you scared to meet him? <laughs> and you're like, hey, I cook, I do art. Oh, yeah, <laughs> hey, how you doing? Yeah, right. <laughs> hey, General, how you doing? You know, I did meet him. I mean, you know, but it turns out that um, how we ended up in Florida, unfortunately, my girlfriend's mother, the general's wife of several years, the general um, wanted a divorce. So he divorced his wife, my girlfriend's mother. We went to Colorado Springs, stayed on the base with the general for a month at Cheyenne Mountain, and that was another story. They, the guard at this, the sentry at the base of the Colorado um, Air Force Base asked my girlfriend, who is that, when he looked at me, and she said, that's my boyfriend. You know, because I, I was furry looking, I mean, sure. you know. Kind of semi swamp thing looking, <laughs> so, and you're at this like clean cut military. Well, now base. I'm I'm on the you know the NORAD you know the um, the major defense um, base in, in <laughs> the world. I mean of America and the military. And you were know, you cooking for guys there or anything? No, I was a guest. Yeah. So I had three servants. I had maids, <laughs> aides. I you wow. know. My clothes were pressed that every sounds, day. You were there for a month, right? For a month. That sounds like a fun month. Getting uh, my girlfriend's mother's belongings all organized to move. And um, so I was with the general, and he, he led over 200 um, bombing raids in Vietnam. Wow. So he, he, we were worlds apart, yeah. totally worlds apart in looking, thinking, but he liked me. I liked him. He always invited me to sit down at the dinner table with him and have a bottle of wine and talk about the world and talk about his experiences and, at the time, our war of Vietnam. And he said, Mario, war is an evil necessity that I have been in and the world has been in forever and will probably forever be in. But he, you know, he ran bombing raids in Vietnam. He went and dropped napalm. Wow. He went and dropped, you know, so I was there with him for a month. Wow. I was there with him for a month and uh, I was uh, taken. Uh, one day the general says, Mario, you want to come with me today? I says, uh, General, where are we going? He says, well, we're going to go into the dugout mountain, the Cheyenne Mountain, what which is, is which is the NORAD, um, it's North American Air Defense Command installation. It is, like the base it is, it, it's the base inside the mountain. There are, That's so cool. There are 250 foot long steel bolts, a bolt with a giant nut. Yeah, That's yeah. the size of this room. That's what keeps wow. the mountain together when they... So what's in there? What are they doing in there? Well, all right. So he asked me, he says, we're going to go and we're going to have a, a briefing today. And so I'm dressed in my quite relaxed, uh -oh. liberal food clothing <laughs> and uh, looking like, uh, you know, uh, someone from the swamp thing of sorts, uh, you know, uh, somewhat of a, a hippie-like. And uh, so the bus pulled up at the general's house and there were 15 or 20 other Air Force generals, one star, two stars, three stars, but only one four star. And I got on with the general and these guys were like, 
one guy says, who are you? <laughs> Seriously. It's like all these high profile people right, are like, right. why, why how are you doing? <laughs> right. exactly. You know, who are you? And I said, well, I'm the general's daughter's boyfriend. And, and that was, that was, uh, that's you your know, official ranking. That was right there. Everything. We had a party. We had a good time. The bus was, everybody was laughing, having fun going. But as you went winding through, um, and I probably shouldn't talk much about it um, as an installation. Right, right. I mean, it is, it's uh, super classified stuff. But we came to a briefing room and like a theater in the dugout mountain with about 20 or 30 theater seats. Wow. And uh, there was a man giving a demonstration and he basically, um, he had a pointer stick and they had a screen and they had a projector and they were projecting on the screen a uh, spaceship. And so I'm like, okay. And so they, they said that right now at our time, we have more satellites in outer space than it's getting crowded out there yeah. in outer space. They told this was- What, what year what is this? This had to have been 70, Let's see, seventy six. This was in the seven. In, if this was in the seventies, they said it's getting 70s, crowded out there. Yeah, I, I, and the thing is too is like, it's it's often known that the military industrial complex is about thirty to forty years advanced in technology than the civilian guard. Well, and, and he was talking about things built into mountains in the seventies. Mm -hmm. Right. We're well, in twenty. This, this we're in twenty twenty one. So I imagine this was every bit of now. this was every bit of Star Wars. I mean, I can't mm -hmm. really go yeah. in in depth about what so I they saw. They just let you in there. Well, I mean, did you no, have to sign any forms? No, NDAs no, or no, no. I was with the general. You were just the general's daughter, yeah, or daughter's general's, boyfriend, yeah. Right. So, but here's what it was: the pointer, the the man directing the. Um, discussion the pointer was a spaceship and like I had just said that um, there were several satellites in outer space that are junk that have burned out this was the design for Retrieval. the space shuttle mm. this was the space shuttle program that, Pre was, that would future to become this was the design this this was, yes, but this was the space shuttle, the first space shuttle for the that, US. For the US. And, and they built NASA it. This is NASA, yeah. but this yeah, is. Na probably NASA ex-military. They're trying well, to still figure Air it out. Air Force is, I mean, you know, you're all. But this was the, you know, this was the, um, the demonstration yeah, that they said that this was the, the ship that they were going to go out into outer space, open the cargoes, and bring in the satellites and bring them back wow. to Earth. So they're doing so a retrieval mission briefing, pretty much. Basically, that's what the space shuttle program was about. It was a garbage truck for burned out satellites wow. in the beginning. So fast forward, I leave Cheyenne Mountain, move to Florida. The reason I moved to Florida is because my girlfriend's mother's other daughter lived in an Air Force base down in the east coast of Florida called Patrick Air Force Base. So the general got rid of his wife and put her on another Air Force base mm -hmm. in Florida and gave her base housing the whole nine yards. Okay. And this is how I, my mission, my mission when I left 
of Colorado Springs wasn't anything military, wasn't anything sci-fi. I carried a 10-foot box truck, U-Haul box truck, full of the most expensive booze that the general's wife had uh, collected over mm -hmm. 25 or 30 years. It was just all, it was all liquor. What'd you do with it? And well, <laughs> I had to get it down to the next Air Force base, way across. So the were mountains. you by yourself doing this? No, I mean the general's wife and my girlfriend were driving in a in their their fancy limo, mm -hmm. and I was the you know I was the trucker. I was. There were governors on trucks. You couldn't go faster than 55 miles an hour. So I was behind them pulling all the liquor to the Air Force Base. Wow. And uh, that's how I got to Florida. Huh. I wanted to ask real quick and go back there. So because you saw that spaceship stuff, did you ever ask the general or anything about aliens or anything like that? Um, aliens, no, not much. Uh, do, you think, but here's, do, you, do here's, you think after being there that that could be possible? Here's, Well, we'll talk about it. But here's where the spaceship idea went to they built the space shuttle and i was down there the year after i saw the diagram being drawn up i saw the first three space shuttles take off from cape canaveral because then they, they launched them in florida right Cape Canaveral. You were following the track of the spaceships. Well, that this is a secret CIA operative, yeah, Mario. Unknowingly, unknowingly, all of a sudden, I'm like, oh my God, the space shuttle. <laughs> so I lived in Cape Canaveral in a small little apartment uh, right off the beach on the ocean on the Atlantic, and I'm like, oh my God, the space shuttle. That's that being, That was the space shuttle I saw up yeah. in the Colorado mountains in the that Cheyenne mountains. That must mountain. have been wild. And what so, was Wow. But the first the, the first is... one was scrubbed, the first shot because of weather Just aerodynamics? No, or... no. Weather weather governs the space shuttle shots. Weather... Do you know about how much money they dumped into that? Oh would you say millions, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars and probably a billion if there was that much back then. You right. know, but um so basically um that's when the shuttle took off with people on board. And, um, you know, that's... It, that's and you said it failed? No, no. It, no. it made it, but it, they held it up for three days because of weather. So oh, picture this. Okay. You have all the presidents. You have all of Congress. You have all of America. Mm -hmm. Their eyes are watching Cape Canaveral for the shuttle shot. It's big stuff. Yeah. Joint chiefs of staff, they're all down there. They're all thinking they're going there. Was the general down there as well? General's down there. Everyone's down there. They're all thinking they're just going down there, you know, get a night at the hotel, the shuttle shot, and bam, take off. Everyone go. Three days. So wow. now it's the biggest party. <laughs> Were you there for it? I was there for it. It was the Did biggest. Did you party with so, the so general? You, it was. I didn't. I wasn't hanging out with the general. I was. I lived right on the beach. We were mm -hmm. already. We had our community of, you know, our friends. And so, yes, we, everyone in town, they triple parked all the highways, all of um, A1A, which is the main artery from mm -hmm. Miami to all the way north, wow. was shut down. With wow. Yeah, Similar. just shut it down because of diplomats and reporters. And three days later, if I'm not mistaken, two or three days later, and, and it, it went 
when the shuttle shot, it it was the most unbelievable thing Did you to. See it with your I eyes? saw it, yeah, because I'm living. I'm right on You're the right beach, and yeah. I'm only probably six miles from the actual oh my gosh. pod where it's taken. Did you tell people you were with? Hey, I. I saw the dimensions for that in Colorado. Well, I mean, uh, you know, I had, um, but it, it, so I saw this space shuttle take off and it shook your flesh on your face. It shook the air. It, the molecular structure of the oxygen mm -hmm. vibrated. It, it moved through space. Mm -hmm. You could see the air separating wow. as it took off and everything was just, the, the so sound cool. was unbelievable. But the most amazing part of a shuttle shot is seeing it a night shot. That is, then you really, really, everything turns bright copper mm. gold. Wow. That's cool. Like gold. Every, your faces, all the people on the beach, everyone's sitting on the beach in gold shaking. And, uh, you know, so. That's but that's, that's basically um, how I got to Florida. Sure. But what during were you doing the, for a living in Florida? Well, this is what it's leading into. So the general's daughter and, and the general's wife, they have to go back to Colorado Springs to wow. finalize the divorce. Okay. Hmm. So they said, Mario, we'll be back. Don't do anything drastic. So while they were gone, I opened an art school. I opened up the Cocoa Beach Academy of Fine Art. That sounds awesome. Located on Brevard oh, wow. Avenue in Cocoa Beach. And I was the art director. And I had, by the time I had that Were you small. you flute at this point? Well, I'm, I've always been a musician since, oh, okay. you know, I've been you did that back in Chicago 17, when you were young. 17, 18 yeah, years so old. So back when you were starting that community college stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Irish people, the Kellys from New Mexico, they gave me a, an Irish fife, <laughs> a tin whistle. A tin little whistle recorder, and that's basically how my woodwind, and we go to the woods at night, play the congas, play the bongos, play the flute, drink cheap wine, and uh, um, celebrate the full moon. We'd have full moon dances, and but back to Cocoa Beach, so they said, don't do anything drastic. I go, and I said, I got to make a living. I had come from a, a great art school. I had a lot of knowledge. I knew how to uh, teach, I knew how to paint, know how yeah. to draw. So I organized a school where I was the teacher, the instructor. It was in a small little shopping mall, a, a strip mall in, in Cocoa Beach, Florida. And uh, so I was there for complete total about seven years in Florida. But after three years, I was growing out of the small little mall. And so I, um, I had had probably probably 2,500 students to 3,000 students that I had taught in Cocoa Beach, Florida. Holy cow. And so... How many years did you keep that open? Um, I was complete about seven years in wow, Florida nice. with the Cocoa Beach Academy. That's awesome. And did the general ever come back with his daughter? Uh, no, the daughter came back. The mother came back. They were pissed off that I went and opened this business. <laughs> but, you know, I had to do my life. Mm -hmm. So she lived on the Air Force Base the general's wife at Patrick Air Force Base, mm -hmm. where another vehicle I saw unveiled, the stealth bomber. Oh, yeah. That was the first the time. Whatever. What's the stealth bomber? It's the black one, right? That looks like a falcon almost. It looks like a giant um, garbage fly. 
Yeah. It's wow. it's got the wingspan. It's a B2 stealth bomber. Yeah, it's and that was first unveiled in probably the early oh, 80s. Wow. Yeah, you see that. Yeah. And that was parked at the Air Force base down in Patrick. You know, it was a mysterious. Wow. But it yeah. would come flying off the ocean in a land. It's loud and, and oh, fast. I mean, this sonic booms the whole nine yards. And but Top uh, speed is 628 miles per hour. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, please, definitely go ahead. So uh, I wanted to mention here real quick, Dufresne might show up in the midst of this podcast yeah. here. Uh, Mario wanted to go step away here for a second, so we're just going to take over here, and then uh, we'll we'll bring it right back in. How, how are you guys feeling about this so far? Good. No, it's crazy. I mean, I, one of the biggest things that I'm taking away from it is yeah. realizing that, uh, like, I get, we're just talking through this, but back in the 70s, right? There was, and, and again, we, he doesn't want to go into deep detail about that stuff because I get, get the confidentiality, but I mean, we're in 2021. You know how far along an advanced technology mm -hmm. is like there's so much we don't a know a thought that popped up while he was talking about it is actually that i'm hoping that wars stop on the earth between different countries and they start going outside into the universe and they just start conquering planets i think that that's way. hundreds of years down the road but yes i agree i agree. I don't think we'll see it in our lifetime unfortunately that's another thing i thought of too but i just thought that would be an interesting dynamic but who knows anti-aging medicine mm -hmm. um i actually did a thing last night it was a calculate when you will die there's an actual like testing. It, it, there's a whole site and you can calculate when you'll pass away. When did it say you would? And it was you had to you had to do your like BMI and all that kind of stuff. It was based sure. on your weight and your height, yada yada. Uh, but it said I would die in um, what was it twenty? I think it was twenty twenty seventy. Well, the first one because I did it wrong. It was like <laughs> he's saying that he did some calculator thing that told him when he would. Oh, die. here it is. Uh, Friday, May twenty sixth, twenty one o two. That's a pr that's a pretty bit of ways away. Yeah, Friday, May 26, twenty one oh two, and it, and it's very much dependent on your weight and your height uh, at the time and all that kind of stuff. But I don't know if it's accurate, but it was I was just reading it in one of my Bible yeah. things, and it was like there was a guy that was doing a sermon, and it was a way of calculating that, and and really what the the meaning of that was to focus on, stop focusing on your little moments, focus on that counter, that clock going down, and appreciating uh, so all the little to help motivate you to yeah. work harder. Cool, that's interesting. So Mario, we left off seven years art school. You're in Florida. Did well, you Cocoa leave Florida Beach, by this Florida. time? All right, so I'm still in Cocoa Beach, Florida, and um, I um, I took a break. Um, the girl I was dating, the general's daughter, decided she wanted to go to Hawaii. So, you know, the old romance, you know, romance ruins every great vacation, but... Um, Would you say getting into romance at a young age is a good idea? Or no, it's, idea? it's a great idea. Okay. Just yeah, it's a great idea because you're going to learn the real lessons of life and, and relationship and people and you know I mean uh, you you have to know what people are about as young because you're going to grow up and you're going to be one of the ones that you know the adults you're going to evolve right, into right. an adult and have to know you know who you like, what you like, how you like the whole nine yards. Mm -hmm. So I'm still in Cocoa Beach, Florida, and um, she wants to go to Hawaii to um, just go visit or go see Hawaii. Uh, one of her friends moved out there, and so I, uh, sh she left, 
we, we went our separate ways. So I'm running my art school in Florida and I decide, hey, I'm gonna go to Hawaii. So I um, told everybody, you know. What year is this that you're going to Hawaii? This gotta be, um, let's see, I went to Hawaii in 80, probably 82. Okay. Um, we're getting closer to what were, what were the planes back? Okay, well that was in the 80s. Yeah So, so how far along have commercial airliners come along since then was that like was well, I mean the the 80s I mean there have been some massive airships Airplanes built in the 80s. I okay. Mean, yeah, maybe you I'm know more. I mean I was on a were a, you a warm beach or a cold weather guy because you had gone to some cold weather places You grew up in a cold weather place, but right. were you fond of the beaches now? No, I I'm uh, totally to this day I love the ocean. I love the mm-hmm. sun. It the desert. Like the desert's okay, but there's no water, and you gotta mm-hmm. have water. Yeah. Do you I see mean, yourself yeah. in the future going other than currently you're in Illinois? Do you see yourself like ever retiring. retiring somewhere else, or you think this is your? Um, actually, um, we have talked about. Um, there's a lot of different uh, deals going on in Italy. In southern Italy, or just in Italy, for cheap places to renovate. Well, them. you can buy a, a house for two thousand dollars. You can buy a house for ten dollars, but you have to promise and sign a note with the Italian government. And whether or not this ever goes on, sure. But this is like for people your age, and you know who can get a lead on life and you know do stuff mm-hmm. at an early age. All the great things that has taken me, you know, decades and decades to do. And uh, Italy, as long as you invest $30,000 into the property within three years, they give you the land. Wow. And wow. If you look, Sicily, I'm gonna have to look into Calabria, <laughs> I mean, all kinds of places. All over the place. So, I mean, we've tossed the idea around about Italy, but um, how I compensate for not living on the beach, mm-hmm. living on the ocean, I'm, I'm in my um, youth, I was an avid swimmer. I was a. I used to dive off cliffs. I used to uh, deep dive with uh, just the, the mask on and fins wow. in Hawaii and stuff like that. And so, but I left Cocoa Beach, went to Hawaii, yeah. and um, I saw my friend, and I toured the island. And while I was touring the island, um, I was on the remote side, which is uh, called the Kalapana Coast. It's where the black sand beaches are mostly. So and it's the active volcano. <laughs> I was, I saw the active volcano. I saw the lava field. I've seen it erupt m- several times. How many years were you living in Hawaii? Well, so here, let me, so I go to Ka- Hawaii, right. see my friend. I go around the island. Hawaii is the biggest of the islands, Hawaii island, not Honolulu, not Maui, not Kauai. There's a place called Hawaii. That's the big island. That, But it's 300 miles round. Wow. So it's got the, it's the highest mountain tip in the world. If they consider it's a volcano mountain hmm. and it goes from the floor of the sea, it's some 38,000 feet 40,000 feet to the tip. There's an observatory there. They have a giant uh, um, uh, telescope there. They 
you know, they have all kinds of scientific yeah, stuff. Yeah, I think I've heard about it. They right. do, they do a lot of like a, a ast uh, astrology work there. Correct. Because you can see the skies. That's the big island. <laughs> and so, but I'm going around the island. I see this sign. It says Kalani Hanua, and I, you know, it's it's don't know what that means. Sure. But retreat, holistic retreat. So that I'm thinking, right up my alley. you know, I'm like, whoa. So I go in and it's 20 acres of a, a resort. It's a cultural resort. Hmm. 20 acres of people. I wonder if it still exists. It's three years ago, it had a difficult time. The lava came through and pretty oh, much no. demolished a lot of the roads. And so it's sketchy now. But mm -hmm. um, so I go and uh, I go up there. They have an art department. They have a an outdoor kitchen, they sleep 125 people a night, and I meet the director. And, uh, you know, I, I introduce myself, I says, hi, I'm Mario Pelagi, I'm the art director of the Cocoa Beach Academy of Fine Art, huh. Cocoa Beach, Florida, and he says, hi, I'm Richard Koob, I'm the director of Kalani Hanua, you know, cultural event, and so they put on language institutes, they put on dance festivals. Wow. So, um, he gave me his card. Two weeks in Hawaii, go back to Cocoa Beach, Florida, keep going with my art school. And for a side job, I owned a produce market wow. in Cocoa Beach, Florida also. Getting back to the family origin. Well, there. food, I've always kept the parallel. I was going to ask, during your travels, did, were you learning or cooking along other people and trying to experience or pick up some of their skills? I was always cooking. I picked up a lot of skills from the practical part of meeting people from all over the world and cooking mm -hmm. what they're cooking. And that's cooking. something I'd love to comment on. I think that's super important. You know, you see how Mario even just said he met, he purposely he met, met, he traveled and met the director. You know, he took every opportunity he could and tried to connect himself. And I think that's what's super important in a lot of people nowadays. Don't do that. There's so many people around you in your life you're never going to see. So that one opportunity to network with them or, or just gain any little bit of knowledge from them is, is so huge. Correct. And now people are, I mean, outside of the COVID, people are still kind of, a, you know, we try and share knowledge. I mean, America now, the conglomeration of races in America are completely worldly and in Chicago, completely worldly. So now the food has evolved from basic hamburgers, hot dogs, grilled cheese, stew, pot pies, um, American stuff, which is tradition, yeah. ham, steak, right. and now you have sushi, now you have uh, Thai, fusion, now, now yeah. you have fusion, you have, now is, you know, as a chef now, and we'll get back to, you know, my cooking and what I do, but you want to know a little bit of my history, but now is, a, is the best time in America, the best time in the world, to learn from other people that are your neighbors, that when they close their door, he's a Filipino, he's making Philippine food. Right. When he's German, he, he goes in, kind of an expert and, in and does their kraut, does their mm. Wiener schnitzel, does their uh, pasta. When I close my door, I go and I make lasagna, I make meatballs, I make homemade garlic bread, I make uh, aglio olio, Primavera, I make brujol, I make 
so people coming into my house, they would learn that. And when you go and you share, that's the greatest part about once this pandemic, hopefully the vaccine, and well, like I say, everyone take the vaccine. It's good for you. It's, it's only going to help you come out of the closet and get back to reality if there's going to be. And then people can share this stuff that they know that the foods that they make and they can share. You can go to someone's house and not feel like I got to be six feet away from you. Yeah. Or, oh, my God, is COVID trailing them? Or yeah. did they just blow a fart and there's COVID on it? <laughs> you know, that's true. I, I so with your businesses, you do you leave Florida, come back to Chicago and start opening up restaurants? So. Or? All right. So I'm in go back to Florida and I get a letter in the mail from the director of Kalani Hanua. That's what I was saying. I knew he said it. From, he purposely said that he met with that director. You know, I knew that was going to lead to something. Richard Koob, he's a director and a very well-known painter and you know, just an outstanding individual. Is he still alive now? Yeah, he's still alive. His family, he was an outcast. He was a um, commercial artist. His family owned farm implementation. Uh, companies they they built farms farm machinery they made their millions and millions and millions Richard was kind of a off the wall they gave him a million dollars they said here just leave just just <laughs> go just go here's a million dollars so he went to Hawaii bought this land and built this cultural center and it's been 30 years still around and I I first was introduced in 1983 so I'm in Cocoa Beach, I get this letter. It says, Dear Mario, hello, you know, aloha, aloha. This is Richard Kub, Kalani Hanua. Uh, we really want you to come back to Hawaii and we want you to come work with us at oh, Kalani Hanua. <laughs> and we would like you to be involved in our art productions. We would, cause they did silkscreen. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and me doing graphic artists and all this stuff, I mean, and painting and doing design, I could design, and we made we made screens. We made our own silk screens. They, and then the food. So I became the head chef oh, at nice. Kalani. But so I'm in Florida, and uh, all of a sudden, I, you know, I'm thinking, maybe it's time that you know, the arts are that. the arts are running art schools, running education. Believe me, I starved. I, I mean, I might weigh 160 now. I weighed 124, 25. Hard work and just... Well, no, no money, no starving, just mm. anything. And do you think... I think that's something big. You were starving, but you were happy while you were doing that, correct? Well, like And, right. that, and that was mean, what made right, it worth it? Right. It's, it's... All right. When you take on the life as an artist and you, that fine art, it's you're not at the top of the totem pole with your work. People aren't rushing out when they get paid to go buy a Mario original, to go buy a Chad original. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, they're not running. They're they're going to buy basic stuff, TP, um, clothing, food, necessities, necessities. So mm -hmm. the artist in America that isn't working a nine to five job as a commercial artist downtown, now in computer designing with computers have taken over, they've pushed the fine art out. 
although there is a renaissance coming back of fine art. They're rediscovering the fine arts. But um, unless you're in that fold, you're going to starve. Sure. And how are you going to pay rent? Right. How are you going to develop a family? How are you going to have a million dollars? these other things we want to do with our lives. Well, and was that, I think, for Chad, too? Like, was that a big... That was a really big reason why I think I switched my major from opera to, to music business and, and going down the arts management route was I saw that to really do this full-time, you have to be the one, 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 one percent. And if, you're, if that's not you, then you have to do other things with your life. And, and I realized, I, I came to that point where there's certain things that we do and we love that we can always do forever and we don't need them to be our career. And there's certain things we can do and be passionate about that we can do for a career for the rest of this life. And I think sometimes when you, those things you love, you turn into a career, you tend to maybe walk away and not like it so much because you turned into that career. Um, I mean, I think that would be true for some people, but. Yeah, for sure. Hey, Johnny is actually joining us now. So if you want to pull up a chair and sit next to Lil, um, they're going to actually talk through that mic. So where did we just leave off? All right, so I'm you're now, now an art. You're, you're, well, now, what was your position there? Okay, you, I'm now leaving Cocoa Beach, Florida. Sure. But in the interim period, I passed through Chicago to go work at my father's restaurant in downtown Chicago. He owned a famous corned beef eatery with a Jewish family. They were famous from 1933 to 1988. Wow. And basically, I went to work for him to get up some money to, you know, when you're a starving artist, I mean, you don't have a lot of money. You're lucky you get from enough gas from one location to the next. Yeah, right. Right. You know, it's just the reality of, that of the arts all over the planet. Okay, like in Bali when I was in Indonesia, I traded shirts with a collar that they never saw for amazing original Balinese art. Wow. Hooded sweatshirts, hoodies, Indonesia, never. This was 84, 85, 86. They had never seen a hoodie and they were like, oh my God. What made you go over there? That's another good story. But, <laughs> right. um, the, uh, so I, I leave Florida, come to Chicago, yep. work at my father's restaurant in the Chicago Theater Building, wow. right adjacent, a swinging door a great spot. into the theater. And, you know, this was, you never had to advertise back to restaurant life. And what year is this? This is in the this 80s, is 80, right? This is 83. Okay. Right, 82, 83. And you never have to advertise when you're at State and Lake. The subway is coming up, the L's coming down, and there's a million people every day walking by food. Marketing's not pretty hard when you're in that No, my father told me, he was a wise man, he died at 96. Salvatore Palagi was the, pretty much the, um, the originator of the commercial Palagi business in, wow. in 96 that's i mean when that's he died crazy. he died but this was uh, he told me he says son i haven't spent one dollar advertising ever he said son i have to push people out of here they open at 7 a.m mm-hmm. there's 150 people in and they're doing they're doing, doing like lunch entree bagels they're doing breakfast okay. they're doing wow. lunch they're wow. doing dinner they have a bar they're doing um, massive amounts of so you're getting what like, do you think was their average like average amount of money they were making per day 
you think? Um, well, let's see. Um, Dad, um, they made so much money that they had to transport all the money from the first floor register to the third floor office in big shopping bags. Holy oh, shit. And they crap. would never count it until about a week, a week and a half later. And every day they would just open the door two or three times and throw a shopping bag full of money, cash, into the office. Wow. Was there credit card payments in the 80s? No, there were, there were no credit cards. Were you, were you a manager at the restaurant? Like, I was how, a night. How, how long did it take before you were in a leadership role at the restaurant? Well, right away, um, I was a night cook and closing cook. So you're the night manager. So you were closing so, up shop. So I closed at 1 a.m. every night, mm -hmm. and you didn't close the restaurant until 1 a.m., 100. So you're cleaning up after well, you're doing, 1. So you no, no, you start cleaning. At, yeah, at 1 o'clock, you start breaking down. Okay. Mm -hmm. So yes. my father had a video camera. He watched all of our movement. He had a, a PA system. <laughs> when PA he'd system. say, son... Don't even do that, <laughs> son. It's not one o'clock, and so I mean I'm you know it's God's watching. Yeah, you right. know he knew, he <laughs> knew, and but that's how they ran the restaurant. And you know to be successful, you have to have all. Then back to the food service. Mm -hmm. So I'm working with him mm -hmm. for about seven or eight months. I'm his night manager. I finally the the Kalani Hanua the they told me hey Mario. You know, it's time. Come on over. You know, we want to get you broken into. I was, I was the assistant director of the cultural center, chef, assistant director, and uh, when the owner would go on worldly tours, which he did all the time because we did silk screen, so he would go to China to buy silk. He would go to Bali to get prints. He would go all over the world, and he left me in charge. So I was in charge of the food, the bedding, you know, the, the, the whole nine yards. So I leave Florida. I work at my dad's restaurant in Chicago. I get on an airplane, no luggage, no suitcases. Mm -hmm. uh, my beautiful, very expensive conga drums. I filled my drums full of all my belongings, my nice. worldly belongings, put them in the cases, and my sister drove me to the airport. She says, Mario, where's your luggage? I said, it's all, um, this is it. And my flute. And I, I land in Hilo, Hawaii. And my friends that had been from Florida lived there. They were contractors, so they came and picked me you up. Just knew someone everywhere. Well, Florida. right. And so um, they took me to, uh, you know, they, they brought me to their home. But here's another unbelievable story on the way from um, the airport in Hilo I had um, prior to leaving for Hawaii I had watched Tarzan's movie mm -hmm. the Greystoke Greystoke or Greystroke Tarzan movie it was an English film of Tarzan I saw it three times so now I'm I'm in my 30s I'm, I'm ready to <laughs> I'm ready to go I'm ready to hit the the Tarzan mode Yep. So they picked me up, John and Linda picked me up at the airport. And of course, we indulged in, you know, some of the stuff from Hawaii. And um, we were driving down the lava road. And I said, John, Linda, stop. They said, Mario, what's, what do you want? I said, stop. I'm going to go climb that coconut tree. 
So you climbed that tree? So they pulled over. I went in, uh, you know, I, you I go, you know, I have been watching Tarzan. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm figuring this, you know, this is. Oh this God. is your dream now. This You've been is, yeah. fantasizing so, about it. And so um, I figured I was going to do this right away anyway. But the crazy part is uh, I had never climbed a coconut tree. And so all of a sudden they stopped. I go, coconut tree's probably 50, 75 feet high. And so I'm, I'm climbing it, you know, climbing it, climbing it. And as it's going up, the design of the tree is, is turning out. So all of a sudden, your gravity is leaning down. Is, is, is now gravity is trying to pull you out of the tree. And I'm continually, you know, climbing. climbing and I'm like 25, 30 feet up in the air. And all of a sudden, I just I couldn't do it anymore. And I, I lost all my strength in my arms. I lost my strength in my legs to hold on. And I told John, I says, John, I'm gonna fall. You gotta catch me. And John says, Mario, I, I can't catch you. I says, John, you gotta catch me, I'm falling. And at that point I fell 25 feet backwards, oh. legs up in the air, oh. arms up on in the air. Back. Well, yes, on my back, but what are the chances I would fall in a giant hole in the lava covered with tall Hawaiian grass. And, no. and yeah, I landed in Hawaii, they call a hole is called a puka. So I landed in a puka hole covered with tall Hawaiian grass. And so it saved your back. Well, it saved my life basically. And, but I'm stuck now, I'm stuck in this crevice and laughing like a hyena. And John says, Mario, what, what, why are you laughing? I says, Jen, I'm alive. Yeah. I'm alive. And back to my job, I was supposed to report that following Monday. I couldn't go to my new job for a month because I was in rehab, just getting rehabbed from, you know, my crazy, oh. crazy idea in Hawaii. <laughs> so, the by first, the, And that's the first day you did that. The first, know. very first day on the big oh island in, in Hilo, Hawaii, on the way up to, uh, you know, the, the uh, lava area. Our place where I worked, I was three miles from the lava, three miles wow. from the volcano. And you said you saw it erupt. Oh, many times. Wow. So part of my job was assistant director, which entailed, I used to take people on excursions. Okay. I would take them to the ocean, and I would take them to the side of the road where you would, it was like a theater. You would look up and you could tell when the volcano's gonna blow because the sky gets the biggest winter skies you know here. Mm -hmm. That's how gray, it gets. dark, black in Hawaii. It gets black like a, the biggest tornado you'll ever see, the biggest hurricane you'll ever see. Does it happen immediately? No. So. What I would do is, you know, people that were, we slept 125 people a night here. Wow. So they, they would, I, I was in charge. I took them on a tour. You know, I'd get them blankets, set them on the road and give them bottles of wine and whatever. And, you know, everyone's buzzed out of their brain having a good time. And I would say, okay, in about 20 minutes, I want you to just look up that way. They call it Malka. Up Malka means up mountain in Hawaii. 
So um, I would say, now watch on the horizon. And all of a sudden, they'd be sitting there watching. And you'd see this glow like um, an electric oven coming on, like the, the, the filament of the, the electric, the element of the electric gets like uh, bronze or red, you know, goldish red. And it would just start to get brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. And all of a sudden, you'd see a little flicker of a flame come up from the mountain. And that was the tip of the eruption beginning, the tip of the lava. And then you would see the just all of a sudden, it's 1,500 feet high. And how many years did you live in Hawaii? Only one. Cold? It was Only a one, one fast. Um, so what was the plan after that? Go back to the beef or go back to working with that? Or what, what was um, it? It was uh, basically back into the, the restaurant industry. And, and is this after this time, is this when you start to do your international traveling? or? Well, I mean, that was part of, uh, well, once I left Hawaii, all right, so, but back to the volcano. So yeah. I would, people would just be in awe that this, but the volcano would be spitting out molten boulders the size of this house. Wow. And it would spit, like you've heard of all the, the um, hazmat, caustic air that's been going on in Hawaii because of the volcano. So what would go on is, have you ever heard of the word, um, it's a mineral called mica? No, I don't think I have. Mm -hmm. Mica is a glass. And just for size reference, this house is like 6,000, 7,000 yes, square feet. They, so that's, that's, a, that's a very large very lava big lava. Well, no, there were thousands of them coming out of oh, there. And you wow. guys are just sitting next to them? When we're, no, we're three, four miles away. Okay. Okay. On the ocean, oh, okay. just yeah, yeah. you know, like going to a drive-in. That was the entertainment for... That's so cool. But what would happen the next day after the, the eruption, you walked around... And you would find these uh, shards or long, you know what angel hair pasta is? Yeah. Yes. You would find long angel hair fibers of mica, a mineral that is just like glass Whoa. everywhere. Coating the road, you could go and sweep mica and, you know, you could do. Would that, would that uh, puncture tires? No, no. Could but, you it, make, like but it was bad for you're breathing, okay, that's mm -hmm. why. Could you bring, breathe that in? Oh, you, 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 that's why people, uh, you know, that live on that side of the mountain. I mean, they just, two, three years ago, I was doing my bucket trip list back to Hawaii. Yeah. I did a bucket trip list in 2017, back to Colorado for five days. I did nothing but um, ride around the mountains where I had hung out. And so I was gonna go back two years ago and the lava blew and it was off. It, it, the lava came, it transforms everything. It, it takes away beaches, your favorite beaches gone, your favorite spring that you love to hang out in. You know, there was a place called the Queen's Bath mm -hmm. on the Big Island on the, and it was uh, probably, uh, oh, gotta be 100 feet deep of ice cold water. And people would go there, all the Hawaiians, and they'd hang out and they'd swim in there. Families on Sunday would go. The lava came down and gone. Wow. Queen's Bath filled in. It took our beach away. It made another beach four miles away from just, you know, and that's, that's the 
That's the magnitude of that. That's the way. Mother Nature. Well, Hawaii is all connected underground, underwater. Really? All the islands are connected. Yeah, they're all connected by the volcano. And Hawaii at this point, if I'm not mistaken, is the only active Hawaii. The island of Hawaii is the only active volcano going on. And that's, you know. In the chain of them, yeah. Right. So I leave, I leave Hawaii, I do my stuff there, but I, I had uh, been part of a uh, world dance ensemble, part of the drummers of a uh, famous uh, African teacher, uh, the godfather. What was his name? Babatun Olatunji okay. from Nigeria. He was the, uh, the uh, top. He plays uh, steel, to, uh, steel drums, right? No, no. no he... he plays the congas he plays the the, the okay. african the african class. drum he played a drum that was uh, five feet high five feet tall how'd you get connected to their band well so i'm the chef artist in residence right he comes he's part of the international dance festival if you could uh, talk more towards the microphone actually he's part of the um international dance festival that we were hosting. We were hosting people from all over the world and put on dances of their country. Sure. Okay, so there was the Hawaiian, there was the Japanese, there was you know, the Puerto Rican and the African, but he was the, the main guy on the marquee. So what he did is he would come and put on a performance, but he only brought two or three musicians with him because of the expense of traveling. So. He said to me, he, well, he talked to Richard, and I had my congas there. I mean, the ones that are downstairs, they were, you know, part of the ensemble. And you became a hired gun for the night. Well, right. So Richard said, Mario, you know, we got to get everyone on, the, on our side of the island or the big island. We got to get them together and put a band together for Babatun because he wants to choreograph African dance, and, but he needs the drummers. So... One man down the road on the Red Road, his name was Reggae, and he, he owned a fruit drying company. <laughs> That's so cool. He dried papaya, mango, lilikoi, the whole, I mean, this was, he shipped it all over the world, but wow. he had the dreads down to his hell yeah, down his to the knees. hip, down to his wow. hip, <laughs> he was, and he was an incredible. What was his name again? Um, reggae. Shout out to Reggae. Yeah, Reggae um, wow. on the Big Island. And um, so he, we, to meet him. We, brought, to meet him. we brought him in and we brought all these other drummers that we, we all would get together and jam regardless of who was there. We had our own, you know, cause we, we played for their classes. You know, they put on classes, they had all kinds of stuff going on. And um, so we, we did this uh, big performance. Babatoon gets all of us together and, you know, so now Bubba Toon, we're going to put on a show. And uh, at first he was teaching the dance. And he said to me, he says, Mario, come out. And, and he knew, you know, I'm white as a mushroom, a white mushroom. And, you know, basically I don't know how to African dance. <laughs> sure. Okay. I mean, uh, you know, so he showed everyone. He says, okay, Mario, do this. So I did this. He says, don't do that. He was using you as the example for what not to do. As what not to do. And everyone <laughs> cracked up. And, you know, so I, I kind of took it on the chin. And 
But um, so we performed with Babatun. He got everyone together. He taught them the harvest dance. I mean, African music and African dance is it? They're all basic farmer African farmhand dances. They're all meant for harvest. They're all meant for sowing. They're all meant for harvesting. They're all meant for celebrating the, the, the African movement and it's taken hold massive. Yeah. You know, the hip hop dance now is I'm sure nothing. you learned tremendous just, techniques about drumming from that guy. Oh, unbelievable stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, Jim that. to this day, you know, when Jim invites me, I go out with him to some of his places where he gigs and he says, yeah, come on up, Mario. And they're like, well, what did you bring this guy up for? You know, because I'll get crazy. I mean, Baba Toon was, you know, he just, but he had a drum, two drums, that one was five foot high, wow. and it was probably two and a half feet round, and it had all carved African faces in it. And wherever he went, he bought that drum a plane ticket. It sat next to him on the plane, in his Was drum the, bag. De, the de, djembe? No, no. This this is uh, the real deal. This is what, I mean, oh. ancient Africa, you know, the old world African. The, the African drumming was basically a, a, was a communication between villages. Okay? So they would... And they would send... They, they would send signals from village to village. I mean, it was, and, and also part of their dance, but the drums weren't the modern drums that, these were tiki drums. These were, sure. they had tiki faces carved, but not Hawaiian tiki. These so were did you African. Go on with him? No, 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 no. I um, stayed there and uh, he uh, basically did his stuff. I was his private chef for six days. Every morning, I would wake up at 4.30 in the morning. What was his favorite thing to eat? Um, anything I would give him in the <laughs> morning because he, he was the first one that would get up. And every morning in Hawaii, we, we were a, um, a natural resort. We had three 55,000-gallon tanks sure. that were staggered going down like a hill, a terrace, water collection system. So I was in charge of chlorinating this, making sure the pH was balanced, but we would bring that into the resort and that was the water that ran through your sinks, your shower, you know, but you had to make sure. You had minimal usage, right? Well, you, well we used a lot of it. It rained every day in Hawaii, like on that side of the island, that was the- So the collection was filling up every day then. Yeah, but there were times where it would drown. And then, you know, you would have to really worry about it. But so every morning, the place was run on a generator the size of this room, wow. a diesel generator from here to the window. Mm -hmm. And you'd go in and switch, hit the switch, and it would go on. And all the power, wherever people had left it, their lights would go on, their music would go blaring at like 5 in the morning, their showers would go on. I mean... You know, so we would tell people, turn your lights off before you go to bed, turn your water off before you go to bed, you know, and lights out at 10 o'clock. So this was it. But Babatun would come in early in the morning 
and dressed in his regal um, uh, African attire. attire, like, you know, just like a, a, you know, a prince from Africa. And he was the actual, if you look it up, Babatun Olatunji was part of the civil rights movement in America. What, what he, was he prominent in? He jammed at Martin Luther King's rallies. Okay, Whoa. so this goes back to, he was in Selma, he was in everywhere there was ever major, major, major stuff going on. He was the background, the African music was, the, the music going on behind the scenes. Yeah. And Babatun was, he came from a very wealthy family. He gave up the wealth. Mm -hmm. He decided he wanted to be an artist. He wanted to share and express himself. He wanted to share his country's families, the country, the Africa, the country. He wanted to share their music with the world. Wow. He brought African dance to America. Mm -hmm. He created all of the African dance schools in New York. He owned his own dance school in New York. He brought it, he traveled all over. I'll show you one day when Jim's here, we yeah. watched it. He opened for the Grateful Dead. Oh, Wait, my. really? Yeah, in uh, 19, let's see, either 1999, might have been 1999 in California for the, uh, I think it was the new millennium when the, you know, everyone thought the world was going to end. Yeah. So Babatun was the opening act. So he's he jammed with... Um, um, Oh, uh, Santana, he, he played I with... I mean, he was uh, a predominant... He, yeah. he was what it was. He brought the Afro um, music into America. And lo and behold, little did I ever know that, you know, I mean, I knew he was well-known and famous, but I didn't know of his um, magnitude. I didn't know how great he, he really was. And, he, sure. and he, you know, what he did and brought... He started all of these uh, schools, and uh, he died, let's see, I believe he died in the early 2000s um, in New York, you know. In did he give you an inspiration, I guess, so leaving Hawaii, did he give you an inspiration, like, to, like, I guess after Hawaii, I would assume, which, where did you go to next? I, no, we, I came back to the, we to call Chicago. it the mainland. Yeah, the mainland, okay. And, uh, but he gave me a, um, a big shot in the arm. He vaccinated me with the real uh, powerful, the African beat that isn't just your, you know, one, two, three, four. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing the movement that, you know, the drums really have an incredible power. I mean, drums are as primal scream as they're ever going to be. Drums will never leave the planet. The beat will never leave the planet now. Look what's gone on because of this man coming to America. The whole America, the djembe, now the after the drum circles. Drum circles were unheard of. Now this guy, I mean, everybody's drumming, everybody's into drumming, and it, it, this is, you know, the African. He brought a real revolution upon us. Oh, big time. Seriously. And I can't speak enough about, you know, how he influenced you know, the dance schools in New York. 
you know, Alvin Ailey, I mean, the whole nine yards, everybody who was who, who owned professional schools, they brought him in. He put African dance into America's ballet schools. Yeah. Oh, wow. I he gave, he gave a way of life, really. I mean, if you look at, at a human, he gave a, a whole... A whole different point of life you know it gave an inspiration for people to look upon that i think it's so cool mm-hmm. to see as a person you grow to figure out what's truly important to you and for him he was willing to give up that wealth from where he came from because he knew that was what he wanted to pursue and i think that's super important for everyone um, and i think at, you'll know as you get through your life what the right decisions will be in, to make would you say like what what going through all of your opportunities and the things you grew through, it, it seems like that every opportunity that came in your way, you took. Do you have any well, regrets well, in life? Like, um, do you... Well, I earned millions of dollars in my life, and I've spent millions of dollars. I've, my of only regret is I didn't save a couple million. Sure. That's all. You know, other than that, um, no, I mean, in the restaurant business in Chicago. Yeah, when you came back from Hawaii, did you open up your own restaurant at that point? Or when, Pretty much. Like, what, your what, is, what inspired that? your first restaurant? Like, All right, so, Mario restaurant well, so what went on, the first real restaurant of mine was in Cocoa Beach, Florida. I did the, you know, I made sandwiches for surfers. Mm-hmm. I made smoothies. We, we, the girl I lived with, the general's daughter, she yeah. owned a sprout farm. So that's when Sprouts first came around. In the 70s, Sprouts were big. I mean, people and people that didn't know what a Sprout was, they, ooh, what is that, you know? Oh, <laughs> God, what is that? Oh, is it a worm? <laughs> you know, a mung bean Sprout or, you know, but Sprouts are, this was all part of the changing of America's food, their recognition yeah. of yes. another way to eat. And this was the counterculture moving through do you space think, do you think there's other food things or ways we could live off the land that we aren't currently that will eventually come up in the future or do you think a lot of that has already you know been discovered um it's been discovered basically are people taking the opportunity to get involved in it that's where you miss the boat it's everything is here okay. for you to be the healthiest person, your body, your mind, your heart, you as a person can be. It's all been done prior. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm one of the forefathers of the movement of the sprouts, of the, the whole wheat stuff. I mean, you know, my niece came down, I made her whole wheat pizza in, in Cocoa Beach, Florida. She broke down starting to cry. Oh, God, look at that. What is that? You know, just they didn't understand it. They, To this day, when we all get together, the family, they talk about my niece, Mary, who just turned 50, about when Uncle Mario made a whole wheat crust pizza, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, in 1980, and they were they were having nervous breakdowns. I want to get into <clears throat> post-2000s. What's going on in your life as Mario? What are, you, what are you getting into? Um, well, actually, um, right at this point, I have um, just um, from, let's see, coming back into Chicago. In, uh, when I left Hawaii, I wanted to get back into society slowly. Okay. So I moved to Santa Cruz, California for a year. Sounds beautiful. And I lived and worked as a chef 
in an oceanfront restaurant on the wharf. Is that where you made your uh, Supa de Mario? Um, yes, that's where I was beginning to, to experiment. And, yeah. could, you, could you share for some people who maybe don't understand what that dish is, what it is? Well, Zupa in Italian means soup. Zupa de Mar means soup of the sea. I took a spin, Zupa de Mario, because I'm Mario, sure. but it's soup of the sea. And But my twist, and there is a twist with the Italians, that it's not just a soup, but you put a bed of pasta in the bowl. Nice. But you take, you begin with olive oil, mm -hmm. you begin with uh, your clams, your mussels, your seafood, your um, shrimp, your calamar, you put in, I put in lake perch, cod, and you saute that up, and then you put in some clam juice. Wow. So you keep it, it's still the sea. You right. get what I'm saying? It's yeah. still, mm -hmm. the, it's a broth of the sea. And then it's becoming soupy-like, but I throw then like six or eight ounces of my family's famous secret red sauce wow. into that. So right now it's really wow. looking like I, soup. I don't like I don't like seafood. I'm not a seafood fan, but that kind of well, makes me like want to, you well, know. for some, I mean, you either, seafood is almost something that you either, you love it or you hate it. It's mm -hmm. like mushrooms. You either love them or you hate them. Mm -hmm. People, and, and you don't think that's something that changed throughout your life. Oh, you it changed yeah. for me. I didn't yeah. like mushrooms, but then when I went to college and became an adult, they, I was actually, I like them a lot now. Right, right, right. I mean, and, and the portobello has revolutionized people liking a mushroom. You can char grill portobello mushrooms and it turns into a almost like a piece of meat. Yeah. You mm -hmm. know, people put it on the sandwiches now. They put blue cheese over it. They put mozzarella over it. They char broil the hell out of it. I make phenomenal portobello mushroom sandwiches and, you know, you can put a nice steak over that mm. and you know yeah, so yeah. Uh, food has evolved uh, a million times sure. in America food now is the, the most creative it has ever been in the time of America in the world but in America there's more international food being um, invented or exposed People are trying, you know, the creative chef is running rampant now. Mm -hmm. So I'm in, we'll get back to my, yeah, my journey. California. I'm in California. I'm working um, in a um, seafood restaurant on the wharf. And um, I moved back to the Midwest and I open a friend of mine's opening a bar, an Irish bar on the south side of Chicago. That sounds good. This is 19... 80, 86, something like that. Mm -hmm. And so he says, Mario, Mario, I, I need a, it's called Carrie's Beverly Bar and Grill. He's a Chicago fireman. And he wants me to come and put the food into it. So it's called Carrie's Beverly Bar and Grill. It's in Western, the Southside Parade, nice. right in the heart of it. You know, that's Great where, location. that's where the Southside is. Southside Irish, that's um, one of them. St. Patrick's Day around there right. is something special. And, and I've done, I've cooked for all the uh, the chair people of the, the St. Patty's Day. I mean, in the 2007, eight when I really moved.
back to the south side. But in 1986, 87, I helped him open his place. And it was Carrie's Beverly Bar and Grill, food by Mario Joseph Palagi. That's my middle name. So here I got all these Irish people coming in. And all they wanted was French fries. <laughs> and you're like, I'm trying to do maybe, good cuisine. Maybe a burger. Maybe. Maybe a burger, but mostly French fries. Would you say their favorite vegetables was sausage? Sausage, yeah, like Jim, like <laughs> Jim Statler. God bless Jim. Let me guess, they liked whiskey as a drink. Oh, my God. I mean, you know, the south side. So I'm there, and, um, you know, I'm in the back, and, you know, I'm, I have my cuisine that, you know, I'm trying to promote, and, you know, they're not going for any of the, the menu items. And so I leave there. I get a job as a Brown's chicken manager. For a year, I was hired by... Brown's chicken, there's one in Aurora, I still believe, right? I was hired by Mr. Brown and Portillo. They, oh, Mr. Portillo. They are together. Brown, Portillo, they're, they're the same family. They're the same. Okay, so I get, I get hired by Mr. Brown and, um, in Chicago Heights. I'm living on the south side. I'm living on a 40-acre farm in Monee, or Frankfurt, rural I know, I know district of Frankfurt. Yep. And they trained me in Glen Ellen. I didn't know where the hell oh, it was Oh, damn, Glen that's Ellen. a hike. Well, for training, right. Yeah. So, so now I'm the manager at Brown's Chicken. And all of a sudden, uh, I'm like, uh, I don't know about this. I said to the owner, I said, uh, you know, I'm the manager. Who's the cook? And he looks at me and says, you are. Mm -hmm. I said, I thought I was a manager. He says, you are. But you also, you're the chicken cook. You cook all the chicken, and you manage all the employees, and you manage the safe, what? and you manage the books. And the only thing I didn't do was bread the chicken. <laughs> we had a professional breader that all day long, he, would, he looked like the, you would have loved What it. does it take Love. to be a professional breader? Um, you get covered in egg and batter and breading. <laughs> it comes out of your eyeballs. It comes out of your ears. It is in your neck. It's in your face. It's in, it's, you walk out. It's Lil, you would, you would love it, Lil. You look like the doughboy. I mean, it's nothing. The doughboy's got like a tuxedo on compared to what a breader. And that's all they do, eight hours a day. Wow. They take raw chicken. They rinse it, they batter it, they bread it, we call it dusting, and then they bring it to me in baskets. In my job, I couldn't believe it, I had eight deep fryers. Is that a lot to manage for one person? That's ridiculous to manage for one person to cook all the chicken. And there's a procedure, cooking chicken, if you don't watch chicken, it, you'll burn it, but most of all, when you have uh, you have five whole chickens in a basket, if you don't separate it after three minutes, it all sticks together, and it's one big clump of chicken oh. stuck together. Oh, so stuck the flour stuck together. That's, but so that's forty chickens with the eight baskets you're but, dealing with. But if around. you if you don't if you do it too soon, all the breading falls off. 
and you got a naked chicken in the deep fryer and all the breading's boiling away. So the so now you got eight, you got let's see, um, one, two, there were two bas two baskets in each two baskets in each deep fryer. So you have sixteen baskets of chicken going. Oh and wow. on busy days. And I'm in charge of this and I'm like, man, this is insane. And then you gotta listen to people, you know, oh God, they my uh my chicken wasn't done properly, and they then I got to go out and talk to them while the chicken's burning or oh sticking or, you know. So, I mean, it's back to the food service industry. And, you know, whoever out there that is thinking of going in the restaurants, uh, work, in, work in the restaurant in the beginning stages, go in as a, a dishwasher, go in, learn every station, and understand everything you need to know about that business and then learn how to manage it. And then if you're gonna manage it, then learn how to own it because then you're gonna have to manage it and you're gonna have to, when no one shows up, when your, your breader isn't there, you gotta bread it. When your cook isn't there, you gotta cook it. And you know, but back- it Taught you a lot of great skills. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, and it, uh, you know, it drove Hardly. me insane and, uh, you know, basically uh, a lot of stress, a lot of uh, years of uh, feeling doom and gloom. And, oh, yeah. you know, after do you, do you, I mean, yeah, sorry to interrupt there, but do you think like with restaurants nowadays, you see a lot of these, these restaurants where it's more of just a name and a community and feel rather than focused on the actual food. Like, I feel like when I go to a local diner here in Yorkville, right? It's not like it's the best plate of food I've ever had. I feel like there's not real soul or purpose behind the actual cooking. And would you consider if a restaurant's not focused on that? Would you say, I mean, like, if you're a restaurant owner, should you be mainly focused on your food, or is it as much as it's more? Well, your about food, the, experience? the product has to be the product. I mean, you know, I mean, you can't just open a restaurant and have junk and manage a junk restaurant. Yeah, even yeah. though but I feel know. like we see so many of those still, though, I feel like there are a lot of junk sure. restaurants, yeah. you know, no, I, I think that's something that's that we could talk about. Like COVID COVID has really made it so that way restaurants are either either you care about this, you're passionate about it and you're going to try and succeed through this time. Or maybe it's not cut out for you. Like, I guess what I mean by that is, you know, you see small little, like small little franchise, you open your one shop, but you're just ordering, you're getting the regular food from G GFS and well, you're having a, a cooker just put it in a fryer or something. Make it really simple. I feel like there's not lots of passion and love behind that, but we call that a restaurant. Sure. I think and I think there's a reason why so many restaurants, they want to grow or these operators, right? The, the reason why they're not able to grow is because there's no really true passion or recipe behind that. I think it, you're better off, like, I think having two really good dishes than 20 dishes where one of them tastes okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very curious to find out when, when Mario gets back here. I, wanna, I wanted to ask and see what your perspective on 9-11 was, where you were at. How did that affect you? Did, that, uh, did, did you see that take an effect on the restaurant industry, um, other, other things like that? Well, 9-11, um, um, I had left... All right, so if we fast forward, get out of the uh, Brown's Chicken, mm -hmm. um, then I moved back to the immediate south side where my family's at from Beverly. My father, we retired him at 88, and I brought him back out of retirement at 90. So he went from 90 to 96 as a mom and pa, son and father restaurant, Pelagis. 
So fast forward, that's six years in Beverly. I uh, had a, a BYOB there. Fast forward, I was tired of not making money off liquor. So I moved downtown. 2000, I, I run into some friends of my brothers and they have millions of dollars. Nice. What, what is their industry, if you don't mind? They own marble companies. Got it. And brick building companies. When marble, they, did, they did all the fascia of all the downtown buildings in Chicago. Okay. okay, so they did the the uh, insurance, the Aon, all the the big white one, the beautiful, yeah. you know, all this stuff. So they wanted to spend their money. They wanted a tax shelter. Okay, so there's a lot of people that go in. If you want to lose money. Restaurant business is a good oh, place to be. Open a restaurant. <laughs> Especially now. Yeah. And, yeah, well, that's, that's or any any time if you, if you just want to. I mean, because sure. you don't. So it's it's 2000. We're building our restaurant out. And and are you downtown in the loop? I'm at on the, I'm in the heart of what is now called River North. Yeah, I know. Exactly I'm at 10 yeah. West Hubbard. I'm a, a pioneer there. Myself, Richie Melman, uh, uh, Shaw's Crab House is there. Vong's Thai Kitchen will let us entertain you. Mm. Mother Hubbard's Bar. O'Callahan's an Irish bar, Ruth Chris, an establishment from the Carolinas, and Sullivan's Steakhouse. That's it. We're, I was a newcomer on the block. I went into a, uh, a, a Spanish tapas restaurant that had built out to the tune of $3 million, and they folded wow. in nine months. Damn. We took on something that had been built out. This was 2000. My investors... Daddy Warbucks and everybody, mm -hmm. they said, Mario, we don't like this decor. We're going to change it. So I took on, I was like the contractor. So now we're going to keep this, keep that. We're going to paint the place and open in two months. They came in, they said that we had an Irish, one of my guys, a serious Irish guy. Well, Mario, the paint here, we got a pink restaurant. We can't have a pink restaurant. Go back in the kitchen. So he sent me back in the kitchen. And they hired a restaurant designer. $65,000 just for his information. Holy cow. Not, he didn't put a nail in. He didn't do a drywall. Sixty-five grand for his drawing. $870,000 to build out his ideas. So now, rather than two months, now it's seven months later. And we open August of 2001, a month before 911. Wow. So I'm, we, we had a, a, wow. a Palaji wow. restaurant. You're opening a month before 911. Yeah, we had a Palaji restaurant. Back to your question. Yeah, you know, we, we had a Palaji restaurant, you know. Um, in Chicago, Italian food, all this, blah, blah, blah. And so um, they insisted that we have, uh, you know, no TVs. All we had jazz, jazz music, cabaret, a woman, a woman, a woman seated on a piano mm -hmm. in a gown singing. That's classy. You know, jazz. And, what you was know, the name of the, of the restaurant? Palagis. Palagis. My name is yeah. the second of within 10 years and uh, 
So I'm, I'm there, we're no TV, didn't know what the heck was going on. I get a call from my sister on uh, September 11th, 2001. She says, Mario, uh, there's uh, been uh, two airplanes just hit the Twin Towers in New York. And I'm, you know, I got uh, beef blood all over me and uh, chicken juice and pasta and rigatoni. You're in the mindset. I mean, (laughs) you know, I'm like, oh, yeah, two little, like two little Piper Cubs, you know, like small little single engine planes with four people in it. And she says, Mario, go find the TV. So I went to the Marriott Garden down on State and Hubbard, and I walked into the bar, and they had it on TV, and I saw two airliners, massive airliners, blowing into the Twin Towers. And then I saw the Twin, twin, twin Towers um, start to crumble. And I went back out, and on the street at State and Hubbard, mm-hmm. you're only about, oh, two blocks from Marina Towers. You're only two blocks from the Chicago River. You're, and you're only about three blocks from the heart of downtown, okay? So all of a sudden, I'm standing on the corner at State and Hubbard. I see probably two to 300,000 people walking over the bridge, walking, leaving Exodus out of downtown. Buses are packed, no cabs, just walking, leaving downtown. They had found some evidence that the twin, that the um, Sears Tower or some other, everybody, this big thing was, you know, a no-fly zone. The terrorists were just going to destroy Chicago. Everybody left. Chicago. Did you leave the city too? No, no, I stayed. I lived downtown. Yeah. I lived at 405 North Wabash. I saw the Trump Tower crack the ground, begin the Trump Tower. Wow. I saw it finish. It was my next door neighbor. I would sleep and my building would shake. I was in a 62 story building and Trump was putting uh, caissons 14 stories into the ground to make sure the Trump Tower. So long story short, I'm on the 17th floor and I'd wake up in the morning and look down the river thinking there's going to be an airliner. Okay, this was how paranoid, I mean, you asked about 911 and so all of a sudden there's a no-fly zone. So we had a really a good business going. I mean, we had, you know, we- The crazy thing too is I would be terrified. O'Hare is so close to the city. Right. Well, so and, and that's, so th- there was no airplanes were taking off or landing. It was no, no fly, no right. nothing. So what you're asking me, did I leave? No, I kept my doors open and all my customers that had been my customers as tourists and out of town businessmen for a whole week, they came and we became like a family. We were like the 911 family Every day they come in at 11 o'clock, have lunch, drink wine, eat pasta. They'd stick around. We'd have the music playing. And then, then all of a sudden they lifted the, the, you could fly, the airport's open. But no one came downtown then. Downtown became a ghost town. Desolate. Desolate. Restaurants, they laid off 5,700 
hospitality Huge workers. recession in the restaurant wow. industry. Oh, oh, hotels, everything, everything. No one wanted. What year is that? Two thousand one. That, that was nine one one. That nine one one created. How like, long did that recession? Would you say last? Or a year. No it was a good year. Before anyone. To a year and a half before. Um, people felt comfy to come back, but who was really making the money was the small little suburbs, the small little manpa places, the small little places that weren't in the big uh, um, tourist area where people would feel if you're, you know, because what they were doing is, I mean, they blew up New York. I mean, they destroyed Bin Laden. He, he destroyed our economy for quite a while. He destroyed, he went for the heart of America, our commercial, our business sector, and he hit it home. I mean, yeah, and, everyone calls New York the center of the world. Right, but every city. Chicago is probably the second or third biggest in the United States, and mm -hmm. we were, no one was coming down. So Do you think people as a whole and as humanity were coming together in those moments? Do you think that was the biggest unity you've seen in a long time as people and a humankind in the U.S.? Or in, in the beginning, it was total fear. Okay. It was there was, a turning point? Everybody was hiding out. Everybody downtown. We were, on a, we were skyrocketing our restaurant, Pelagi's restaurant. I was skyrocketing my menu, my... You know, I was part of the American Cancer Society. I did all kinds of, you know, Chicago uh, um, Business Association. Sure. I mean, I did all kinds of stuff. We, we took out an ad in a Chicago magazine. It cost $36,000 for one page. Wow. Holy cow. That's, that's how big. We were on the, the books on the airplanes. Yeah. You open up, you saw Chef Mario Palaggi. In the in Whoa. you know the books you'd see in Chicago the business no know. way yeah and then it just then everybody if you didn't have big pockets deep pockets like some of the franchise people you know if mm -hmm. the big the steak people the Sullivans we were new we were the new kid on the block right we we started to pull out forty thousand dollars a month cash out of the investors' savings wow. to make ends meet. Our bills every month, the first of the month to the 15th, I had to have $80,000 cash <laughs> to give away. Every month? Every month. every The first of every month for almost three years. And after a while, because of that- It's just not sustainable. Well, it's, it's you asked about 911, yeah. what was it like? It, it devastated a lot of small businesses like the COVID is doing now. Right. Parallel COVID, and if you don't have massive amounts of money, if you're not McDonald's, if you're not Burger King, if you're not Wendy's, I mean, those guys, they're up 35% right, yeah, from 2019. Right, right now. While everyone else that has a sit-down, um, even the biggies that have a sit-down are dying. Yeah. It's I interesting seeing the dichotomy just between how all these really big restaurants now, the ones that were always changed, the ones that were always doing well, are accelerating during this time. And the people, all the smaller business are just completely, you know, falling off. It's, it's. It is, 
I wouldn't go and say that. I would say that it depends on your menu, mm. depends on your selection of foods, and depends on your seating. What are how, how are you a fast food? Or do you have an incredible That's delivery? True. You know, if right. you don't have an incredible delivery and you're Richie Melman is massive. So, so basically what I'm getting from that is if you're a smart business owner, a smart restaurant owner, getting through something like this, if you were to be changing it and keeping up with the current times you're in, adapting to those changes, well, you, could be, you could still make it if you were um, to be smart. You have to, first of all, stop everything and redesign okay. your food service, redesign your carryout. Sit down is not happening now. And they were thinking, I, every morning I get up at 5.30, I know more news than the newsmen because I watch them all. I read all my news stuff, the Washington papers on my phone. I read all about the industry. I learn all about the world, COVID, what's closed. Italy is shut down. I mean, it's, they were hit the worst in the beginning. But back to Chicago, and if you don't have something that is in a hurry out the door, even the biggest sit-down fine dining, back to your question and statement, the fine dining establishments are being crushed. The atmosphere that America loves to sit at a table have a beautiful napkin, have a beautiful crystal, have beautiful everything mm -hmm. in front of you is almost, is right now, it's not happening, okay? Everyone is scrambling because you're not allowed to have more than six people or eight people at a table, and that has to be six feet apart. In my business, where I was the chef, where it says the red palm, Five years, I was a banquet chef there in Evergreen Park. July, the owner called me and said, you know, we can't do banquets anymore. We can't make any money. And so a lot of places are biting the dust. Richie Melman, Lettuce Entertainment. And they're having to raise their prices, right? I mean, because even supply and these food supplies are increasing. The costs are being increased because the demands are, or not the demand, but the the just the processes they have to put in place in order to get the shipping right. done so then well, in COVID standards. It all right. depends on your menu. Okay. Yeah. If you're still fast food, you're making so much mm -hmm. money so fast. <laughs> it's like my father with bags of money. So what's that. a profit margin for a fast food restaurant comparative to a sit-down restaurant? Um, you probably make uh, 35 to 40% more, I would say, in fast wow. food. Okay. At this moment down. or always? Pretty much always. Yeah. I mean, you know, it depends on what you have going. I mean, there was a restaurant, when I was downtown, it was the heyday in the early 2000s. All the 2000s were, once uh, 911 left, it, it got back to it, got you it. know. But listen to this one, back to your question about 911, how did it change food, okay? So the 90s, we had this thing going on in America's culinary movement of, of um, concentrated foams, okay, um, uh, um, 
condensed foods, aerosol, basil, I mean, just a whole bunch of small little Frenchy almost, small amounts, giant platter, raise it with uh, um, derivatives of foam, flavored, you know, basil, whatever. That was what was going on in America. And that was like, you know, the Iron Chef and all this stuff came from a lot of that. There was, you know, the chef movement was happening in the 90s. 911 comes, boom, blows that out the door. All of a sudden, what's now happening? Yeah, what then? Mac and cheese. <laughs> Comfort food. Chicken. Ah, he said it there. Chicken, chicken wings. Um, pot roast. Burgers. Mashed potatoes. Oh, wow. The bacon movement. Pancakes. Pan I mean. I would say that's just still as much of a presence nowadays than. But that's, no. Back in the 90s, there was a movement, okay? When you'd go to a food show at the, art, at the uh, um, Navy Pier, there would be chefs behind the glass and they'd have a big, big ceramic platter like that big, 18 inches. They'd have food that much and they'd have a oh, sprig. Oh, very bougie, very sprig, elegant. Yeah, well, Frenchy almost, yeah. a sprig, and then on top of the sprig, they'd put a foam and then on top of that, and they were being judged for all this stuff. 911 pretty much, it, you know, it derailed a lot of the fancier food and yeah. people hid. They took back into their homes and they started to cook themselves. They started to go. And also at the same time, we start to see the rise of TV and the cooking network and, and chefs wanting to show others how they could do it in their own home. Right. Like you're saying that, that push towards the residential cook or the in-home cook. Right. Now cook. to make now, all the experience that I feel like this, see. And I feel like in this day and age, that's only been accelerated even, even more. more. Right. COVID is pushing us more in the home. So, like, see, and I, that's why home home remedy companies are so important. Everything is everyone wants everything in their fingertips, and if we can make it at such a cheap a cheap ratio to have it in your home, if you, it could be such a minimal cost. Everyone would rather prefer it in their homes. I feel like something that I'm seeing in this day and age is like personal brands are becoming more and more stronger for each individual chef, whereas like before, like before the internet had to come into play, like your your like way to get in was a restaurant but now you can show like if you, you have a good a enough famous chef brand, on youtube yeah or anything on instagram i mean I'm, I'm pretty well known and i have yeah, a go lot ahead. of do you want to plug your instagram actually what what the name of it is um just chef mario yeah if you, if you guys want to follow him see a little bit about his life you, you can know follow him you there. can you can see my um, library of uh, all i do is post food, food i've made yeah you know it's a great channel. It's I mean, every content. now and then I put a little bit of the weird Uncle Mario the on the beach. Uncle, and, Uncle Mario. You know, <laughs> painting on the beach in Mexico <laughs> or, you know, um, dressed in my, uh, yeah. my sombrero or whatever. But um, food has uh, morphed in with 911. It morphed into a whole nother comfort regime. Mm -hmm. And now Ma and Pa and individual chefs are becoming well-known. You got Emerald pops up, all these other chefs pop up. I, I even see subscription-based food plans like HelloFresh and like what right. you're doing. Right. That's the new frontier. Right. Well, what I'm doing for this family here, the Statlers, I prepare um, a heart-healthy meals. Have you um, thought about expanding that? Well, I am. In the, I mean, in you know, I have another 
another client me. over and here. Potentially and, another one too. And then, I you know, I started another client in Chicago. But I'm would you, would you take on, if people hear this, and a lot of our people that listen to us are in the Illinois area, if anyone heard this and was looking to get to get in on Meals on Wheels, is that something they could do? We would have to have a meeting and, and deliberate. It's very about, personalized. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know. It's cause, a custom. Because I'm not just slapping food together. Right. My whole deal now is to give you the healthiest food I have learned to prepare. And yeah. I've, I've cooked everything that could kill you <laughs> and clog every artery that you even own. Right. But I've now I don't cook that food anymore, and I've refined it, and now there's a need. Our, our world is dying in front of us from the food that we eat. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it's past overdue that we switch. Well, and, we, and, we and there is a movement. There, God bless the young. The younger people are taking the ball, true. and they're yeah. making the healthy foods now. They're, they're going. They're taking this out of this. They're taking the pig fat out of the pig. And somehow still giving you the bacon, you know. And I mean seriously. And so now is now is the best time for eating healthy food. There are so many different ways to eat healthy food now because it's all been done. Me being a, a grandfather of the holistic movement, back to the general's daughter in in New Mexico. Yeah. She was a holistic healer. She had her license as a naturopathic doctor. Wow. She did the Bach flower remedies that were, you know, now this people. This is probably right at the break of this type of holistic this, medicine this is in the when, United States. This is when it, no, we were witch doctors. <laughs> we were. Sure. People were like, what is this? We, yeah. Uncle Mario, you're a vegetarian. My, my aunts, all my big Italian relatives. What? Confused. No meatballs? What? No Italian sausage? What? You know, no brujol. I said, yeah. listen, it's so, oh, you, you're going to be dead. You know, I mean, you're going to die. And, <laughs> and so this was part of the movement I was in. We were the forefathers of the sprouts, the um, um, hummus. I made my own hummus in 1979 out of garbanzo beans. I fed... I mean, I fed the, I made my own tofu. I fed the surfers, surfer sandwiches, falafel. I mean, you know, homemade while they were surfing. And, but this was looking at how things, there was a point where what we have now that you all know of as healthy foods was never here in America. Never, ever, ever. The forties. 50s, 60s, a, a little, a little bit, a little change. Sure. What did people in America, oh yeah, let's go have Chinese food. You know, that was the, that was the extent. Or we'll get pizza. Yeah. The Irish people have pizza or they get Chinese food and that's their, their international. <laughs> I feel like it's the same that's things I eat. Cuisine. You know, that's the international yeah. cuisine. Well, I think this is one of the big things I would love to touch on. I think this for as an entrepreneur in ways of investing, I think I would never personally want to get into the food business. But if there is one opportunity, it's I was driving in Peoria, you know, everywhere you drive around, right? These small communities, you look at all these awful fast food options, right? But there's nothing that's a healthy option that's just as, that's just quick. as quick. 
and everyone's so sufficient. So this is a big area. If I were to ever to invest into the food business, I would invest into uh, something to, to make it convenience. Everything is a convenience. Okay. And I think this is a big thing that needs to be taken. But one other point before maybe we could talk more about that is uh, I was also driving through Peoria and we were driving by Al Capone's house. And I believe your family, I heard a little bit, may have any reference or well, we had, connection um, to Al Capone or your mother or so your grandmother. My uh, family, we were in the restaurant and uh, um, jukebox business, and we occupied buildings in the red light district, which is where Al Capone had the Allerton Hotel at Cermak in Michigan. And um, yes, I mean, my family knew Al Capone. My grandmother, um, word has it that she used to make bathtub gin with Al Capone. And uh, Grandpa Giuseppe Palagi left Grandma in the Prairie Street and just in the South Loop and moved because Grandpa says, "I no want <laughs> to get I no want to get deported." <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, because that's what was going on. Oh. I mean, Italy. The Italians came over. We were considered scums of the earth, like the Irish need not apply, the 1860s, the 1850s. There was was racial, like, it's crazy, like, even at that time, like, it's the same way it is now, or or was, at least in the early 2000s and the 90s, with Hispanic and uh, and African-American, you know, migrants that were moving in, is, is that there used to be that same sort of prejudice towards people moving from Eastern European countries. And you're right, and the, the British, the English, the, uh, the Irish need not apply. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, what it was is the, the Baptist, the um, Lutheran, the German Lutheran, they ran the textile, they ran the stockyards, the big industries were run by people that um, employed um, slave labor, unbelievable conditions in like Chicago's meatpacking industry. We were the Chicago, the South side of Chicago was the major meatpacking industry of America. It was networked from all the trains that come through from the West, from the Midwest, from the North, from the South and everything. Then they got refrigerated trucks and refrigerated train cars and it revolutionized, but Chicago, the meatpacking industry, um, the stockyard, Chicago stockyards, is located at about 47th to probably um, probably uh, 42nd or 41st mm-hmm. in Halsted. They were uh, millions of people that came in the 1860s and they were there processing cattle in the gut trucks, killing the slaughterhouses, and you got paid maybe uh, 20 cents an hour, 30 cents an hour, but the Irish were hated, if, and the Germans had their own bars. If you were an Irishman, they called the Irish, they were shenanigans, they, they didn't like the Irish, they thought they were just all about foolery and wow. mischief, and but if you were an Irishman and you wandered in on a Friday night after getting paid and you wandered into Germantown, there were murderers all the time. 
people were getting murdered and thrown out on the streets and just you know Chicago was uh, a, a very seriously uh, racially divided but but the, the the Protestant they owned everything I wanted to give you a chance we've been rolling for almost three hours now I want to maybe sort of wrap us up and close us in here I want to give you a chance for our generation and the generations that are younger than us, if they hear this, what is the wisdom you'd that you'd want to leave them? Yeah, if you give them one them? piece of advice from growing up at the age of, let's say, they're they're 16 right now, what piece of what, wisdom and advice would you give them? From your time on this earth, would you give them? Um, I would um, learn how to work with your hands, learn how to be athletic, stay in shape, eat really good food that's all around and be wise with what you choose for your career mm. and research it and if you're going to do it make sure you come in at the baseline and learn it in the beginning and were the first early stages all the way through whatever steps whatever procedures there are to you getting a dollar in your hand at six to seven hours later whatever know it inside and out and uh, treat your employees fair and be kind be firm and learn how to work hard and keep your head down and don't complain a lot <laughs> because you've gotten yourself into it and if that's what it's not easy but it will pay off when you, if you do all of those steps and you learn and you research what it's about. And now you have everything at your disposal. You can research anything. For me, like a caveman, I go on YouTube, I can't believe it. I tell Siri, Siri, how many calories are there in a piece of chicken? <laughs> 371. Now Apple's excited. They can yeah, listen in. <laughs> I mean, seriously, you know, Siri and... You know, I'll say how many uh, how many calories are there in uh, four ounces of broccoli? Eighty-one. So, what I'm saying is now, be wise, do your research, you know, and uh, try a lot of things. What about our audience in the thirty to fifty-year-old range? Maybe the people that you know, thirty-year-old Mario was falling off a tree in Hawaii, you know. What about the person that's in between the age of 30 and 50, the ones that are maybe losing hope or don't have guidance or, or feel like there's, there's not much direction? What, what guidance would you give them at that point in your life? I would check your, um, your diet, check how you're eating, check yourself out, check your physique, check your body out, check your, are you healthy? Are you feeling good? Are you eating right? Because if you're not, if you're just, you're having all of these physical ailments that from 30 to 50 are going to kill you and will eventually, um, you know, if you don't watch it and keep yourself together, you know, do whatever you want to do to make your money, but at the same time, make sure you, uh, you know, take good care of yourself because longevity is inevitably what we're all hopefully hoping for. Right. And longevity is, they're proving that certain things are hereditary, but a lot of it is how you go about your, your uh, habits 
and what you do to yourself, you know, and basically, uh, you I remember know. he said also save a little bit more money. That was well, the one thing. Right. Right. I mean, back to money. Yes. I mean, but you have to you make have to, sure you yep. have, you know, a good job that you like, make sure you like it and, uh, and save money. Don't be, don't squander, you know, and, uh, that's a da 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 in Kendall County ah. that I have to tell you about, but I can't tell you anymore. Sure. All right. Well, All thank right. you, Mario. We that appreciate wraps us up here on a Humanistic Perspective podcast. Make sure to check in with us on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays on all your favorite streaming platforms to hear some more of our content. Um, and check us on out. Peace, folks. Peace. Peace. Woo!